Dr. Deborah McNamara is the author of the best-selling book, Rest, Play, Grow, Making Sense of Preschoolers, or Anyone Who Acts Like One, is on the faculty at the Newfeld Institute, and is the director of Kids Best Bet, a counseling and family resource center. Her book, Rest, Play, Grow, has been translated into the Russian language with Italian and German versions to follow. Deborah is a dynamic teacher and experienced counselor who makes developmental science come to life in the everyday context of home and classroom. She also provides counseling services to parents and professionals to make sense of learning, behavioral, developmental issues in kids, from babies to teens. Deborah travels nationally and internationally, speaking to child and adolescent developmental issues to groups including the United Nations and the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education, with over 60 presentations a year to groups including parents, educators, childcare professionals, social workers, foster and adopt community, and healthcare professionals. Deborah shares her insight and passion for making sense of kids. She is a developmentalist at heart who is continually fascinated by the mysteries and beauty inherent in human maturation. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation I had with Deborah McNamara and the time we spent together while she was in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Deborah is not only a parenting expert in the attachment-based developmental paradigm, but she is the most down-to-earth human being and parent you'll ever talk to. As a former struggling foster parent, my aim with the PHP podcast is to help parents gain insight so they, as Deborah says, can be in the driver's seat and can feel empowered as the answer to their children. I had a challenging childhood myself, which led me to seek out the highest forms of knowledge that could help me put the pieces together and make sense of what I experienced and didn't experience. This ultimately brought me into the role of helper and healer, and as I walk the maze myself as a human being, at the center of my heart is always the desire to see us move as a collective into the practices and ways of being that best serve our children and future generations. It ain't easy, especially these days, in spite of how advanced we may think we are as a society. Oftentimes, parents are bearing the weight of so many responsibilities without the support of an extended family or tribe. My hope is that this podcast will come alongside you as you go about your day, and I encourage you listeners out there to send me your thoughts, reflections, and questions for Q&A segments with my guests and I on upcoming episodes. Enjoy listening in on my conversation with a true personal favorite of mine, Dr. Deborah McNamara. So, welcome, Deborah. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So are you okay to start with um, a history or background of yourself? Just sure. to tell us a little bit about how you came to this work and a little sure. bit about your, your family and we'll get to know you a little bit Sounds before good. I start asking you more questions. Yeah, <laughs> okay. sounds good. Um, I'm the mother of two children, both teenagers now, and um, uh, they're, one's in high school and one is just entering into high school, and so lots of transition. Um, they're sensitive kids. Uh, I'm a sensitive, I would say, um, temperament myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a very interesting journey. I think part of that has led me to continue to try to make sense of uh, certainly myself and my kids. And uh, I, when I started working in, in mental health, I knew I wanted to work with people. Um, and started working after mental health with kids at risk um, and then moved into the university environment and that's where I found 
Gordon Neufeld. So I was always sort of a developmentalist and leaning towards attachment and sort of making sense of people through that perspective. Um, and then encountered Gordon Neufeld at a presentation on adolescence, oh, okay. where I was working a lot in adolescence with youth at risk and in the university yeah. settings and just sort of a really interesting uh, mixture of kids in different places, young adults in different places. And uh, when I went to the adolescent presentation, all I thought about was my own adolescence, actually, and I mm. kind of forgot about my clients. And it was the first time I'd sort of saw the world in a way that made sense and the pieces lined up and I was intrigued by what he was talking about. I had a sense that I wanted to understand it more um, and brought, it really was transformational and I don't use that word lightly. Uh, mm -hmm. And I brought it back to my work as a counselor at the time, uh, as a teacher and just started to really uh, focus my energies into something that I knew but didn't have words for. Uh, and uh, and that was just it, there's sort of like a before uh, I met Gordon Newfeld and sort of a relational <laughs> developmental approach and after and then of oh. course um, I had kids at the time when I found him and that was also part of the reason is that I was a developmentalist I had uh, you know studied attachment theory different attachment theorists from object relations to whatever mm. and I thought there has to be something more concrete yeah as a parent I can't take off I can't make the jump from object relations attachment theory into John Bowlby and stuff into everyday parenting with a child who's having mm -hmm. a temper tantrum no this kidding. needs to make sense <laughs> at a more pragmatic level I know you know it's very esoteric even just some of the writing so there was a disjoint there and that was also part of the reason that I I found Gordon Newfeld when I did uh, is I was also for my own interest as a parent and I just thought oh well this is it I'm at home um, and I just need to make sense of it. And so I studied with him, uh, did the parent uh, educators program and then did my postdoctoral intern internship with him uh, for two years and uh, then was invited onto faculty. So, mm. I, you know, it's just been an incredible journey and I've just been so appreciative of my experiences in you know, mental health, in uh, working with people with mental illness, to working in different types of educational settings or counseling settings, and then of course having my own kids mm -hmm. has just really brought that to the fore. And the reason that I wrote Rest, Play, Grow was I just felt, you know, when I was raising my kids, I was doing my postdoctoral internship, internship when they were preschoolers, and I just thought, I, I, you know, with some of the questions and I just would just come into my meetings and I'm just like, I have to ask about my kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to make sense of this. And I just felt it was such a gift and a blessing to be able to raise my kids uh, with such insight mm -hmm. from him. And I just thought, oh, wow. this is what, this is what is needed. And so I said to him at that time, I need to write about preschoolers, Gordon. I, there's just nothing like there. Uh, out there that I can is comparable to what you've given me so that was where the impetus of it was kind of born and then of course it took me 10 years to write it because oh really well I mean I had kids I was in and out of trying to write oh, it and okay. I mean I think it was when the idea first born to actually when the book was actually produced there's probably a good 10 years oh, wow. of trying back and forth and you know starting and stopping and, mm -hmm. and trying to find the space and the time and yeah. um yeah, so I had to quit some stuff, cut back on stuff, mm -hmm. and um, and finally found my way through. Well, and it's not just about preschoolers. It's obviously about all humans. It is. Especially, yeah. it's kind of like the Parenting 101 handbook. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very pragmatic, but yeah. yes, it's very much based in science, and so it's a... Mm -hmm. 
it uh, I hope it provides insight and you know making sense of immaturity however old you are yeah it you know as a parent you can feel very immature Mm -hmm. uh, you know when you're first starting out again and learning something for the first time you can feel very uh, lost and uh, not very confident and Mm -hmm. so I think immaturity is immaturity as Gordon says no matter no matter what age you are right Making sense of preschoolers or people who act like them. And hence the title. <laughs> or becoming aware of the aspect of yourself that is, um, you know, the preschooler that's tantruming within. But you're actually mature if you can realize that and not yeah. act it out. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And, and how immaturity in others is a test to our own maturity level and how it reveals, mm. you know, very easily where we struggle. You know, is it around our, our frustration? Is it around our alarm is it around being more responsible or having people dependent on us Mm -hmm. Uh, you know certainly taking care of a child in lots of different capacities sure brings out our own need for emotional maturation no kidding (laughs) yeah (laughs) no kidding yeah so I know you're really interested in the gut feelings Mm -hmm. topic and you presented on that at the conference and I wanted to to see if you would dig into some of that material with me Um, and then we could kind of go back to the the rest play grow stuff if that's okay and then of course I'm sure it'll all a lot of the attachment maturation all that stuff will come out in your your talk about um, gut feelings so yeah, do you want to kind of dig into... Sure. Well, I, my new research uh, topic is, is around the intersection of food and attachment mm-hmm. and understanding, um, you know, that often through the last, I'd say, you know, studying with Gordon for over 12 years just and, and becoming a parent, um, the role of caretaker around food is an interesting way to understand attachment. Mm-hmm. I never connected them before, but in all the times that were... In many times when we talk about attachment, a food metaphor would oftentimes appear. Right. And it was this continuing dance between this metaphor that intrigued me, uh, becoming a parent and, and just changing my perception around uh, how we, how I as a caretaker have to assume responsibility for this, very different from then when it's just you know me on my own or with my husband. So that dance changed there. And then in my private practice, uh, when I was working with parents around attachment issues with their kids and emotional issues, uh, food would oftentimes be one of the so-called symptoms that of right. distress. And there was very clear patterns here that were happening. Mm-hmm. So this sort of just synthesized into this place of incredible curiosity inside of me to say, hmm, this is, uh, there's something here that I need to understand and I'm very curious about. So I started to do some research on why food and relationships belong together. Mm. And out of that uh, has come, you know, a lot of synthesis of putting and looking at attachment principles in the feeding and eating and the caretaking act that we uh, engage in. But it's, it's a broader I think it, it's something much broader than simply eating. It's just about how we do connection mm, um, yeah. and how food makes that tangible and visible mm-hmm. as something that can be so invisible. Uh, and the, the topic of gut feelings is really, uh, again, out of the research. One of the areas that popped out was just the whole um, 
connection of the psychological, the mind-body connection, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't something that I ever uh, sought to understand, mm. uh, but something that just, um, I mean, I knew it was there. I knew there was intuitively understood the connection, uh, but it wasn't something that I ever saw myself doing, mm. uh, but it's just sort of, it's, I have to understand this piece in yeah. order to understand this area. And so that's where the gut feelings presentation came from this year is in terms of understanding the mind-body connection and how really I couldn't tease apart food from attachment from the body. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that I didn't understand that. And so that was sort of how I delved into the topic. That's sort of the, the background on how I came into that topic. Yeah, so many kids present with somatic issues, right? And... Yeah, they won't eat, or like mm-hmm. if you think of kids with autism and stuff who will only mm-hmm. eat white things, you know, white mm-hmm. breads and all those mm-hmm. kinds of finicky things, and anxiety, alarm, mm-hmm. and the, the stomach digestion problems, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. they all go together, and yet oftentimes the pieces are very much pulled apart. Uh, they can be separate in treatment, and... The pieces aren't put together and we can tackle food problems outside of looking at the context of relationship. Mm -hmm. Although I know lots of people who do. Uh, If you know, if I talk to people who work in the area of eating disorders, I know a lot of people work from a relational perspective in that Mm -hmm. field. And so it's sort of, uh, there's an intuitive understanding, I think, but there isn't a language, I think, as readily accessible around how these things all go together. But yes, absolutely, your body uh, works best in the context of uh, relationship in terms of just processing uh, food and um, uh, using, um, being able to digest and absorb food. But, you know, when I was doing the research, one of the things that struck out for me was that the number one trip to hospitals in the United States is Mm. actually for gastrointestinal issues. Mm. I had not expected to find that over heart, uh, you know, pains Mm. or anything. It was for gastrointestinal issues, which speaks volumes, yeah. you know, um, about uh, this being a very important uh, sign to understand in terms of our our functioning. Mm-hmm. Yep. So maybe just for the audience, just to kind of back up a little bit, mm-hmm. um, if we could define attachment and just go into sure. maybe a little bit of basic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I know what you mean by that, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, when we're talking about the science of... When we're talking about attachment, we're really talking about the science of human relationships. We're talking about the hunger for connection, Mm. um, emotional connection, um, and and different layers of connection. We can have more superficial relationships and means of connecting to deeper forms of connecting. So, uh, being able to share your secrets with somebody is obviously a form of deep connection, and wanting to be known, uh, being with somebody or being like somebody is another form of connecting, but not as deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the purpose of attachment is obviously to pull us together, but but why? Why would nature intend this? And why would it be so critical in caretaking? Uh, and it's because that our children are uh, immature and are highly dependent, and they need to find a home in the sense of a psychological home, uh, where they can do the business of growing up, where nature mm-hmm. can, uh, you know, unro- unroll its uh, developmental plan, and that we as the adults responsible for kids can provide the conditions for them to grow. Just like seeds grow in the right conditions, kids need the right conditions. So attachment is meant to bind 
children to their adults, to make them dependent upon those adults so that the adults can deliver the conditions for growth. And that's why attachment matters. It's it, That's his main purpose, mm-hmm. uh, is to, to bind us to each other for uh, so that our anxiety uh, doesn't interfere, you know, our anxiety about disconnection or not belonging mm-hmm. or not being understood or not being significant doesn't uh, thwart development. Mm-hmm. Without a home, we can't grow because the place that you're left in is a place of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And do you want to say something about how it is that being too alarmed and that would get in the way of mm-hmm. development? Yeah. Well, if we understand that our most important need is for human connection so that we can feel at rest, mm-hmm. we can have a place that we can feel an unwavering desire to be close and to be connected and to get our bearings and to be uh, looked out for and um, to have someone to turn to. We understand that's the most important need. Then the biggest threat that we would experience is the absence of that. And so Mm -hmm. that could be temporary, it could be more long-standing. But if you are not at rest, meaning that you can't take for granted that your relational needs will be met, then what happens is that you are then in this position of having to seek that out. And that becomes the most primary um, modus operandi of the brain is to seek that out because one cannot rest. And if one is not at rest, one can't grow. Mm -hmm. So that becomes the preoccupation of the brain is to secure home in order to grow. And it's it's not like we consciously think this. It's mm-hmm. very instinctive. Yeah. It's very emotionally driven. And it can drive you without you being even consciously mm-hmm. aware that you're seeking contact and closeness. And we can attach to things. We can attach to people. Uh, though sometimes those relationships can be deeper. Sometimes they're more superficial. Um, we can attach to animals. We can attach to our peers. But, of course, for the purpose of caretaking, we need our children to attach the ch- the adults responsible for them mm-hmm. because that is the place which would offer the one hope the most consistent mm-hmm. deepest safest form of connection rather than to something that might be you know moving in and out of a child's life or mm-hmm. like a peer who's immature and yep. you know would be more prone to reject you one moment and mm-hmm. be your friend the next moment because they're immature yeah so it matters, you know, it matters that we are at rest. And if we are alarmed, we are not at rest and we can't grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you called your book Rest, Play, Grow, did you get a lot of feedback about, like, what do people typically think that that's <laughs> about? Well, sometimes I had one radio person say, oh, this is Eat, Pray, Love. I'm like, no, that is not my book. <laughs> and it wasn't. A purposeful uh, play on that either. Uh, it actually came from Joy Newfeld, the title. Oh, okay. And she's just brilliant about mm-hmm. synthesizing things mm-hmm. uh, and very pragmatic. I just love this about Joy. And uh, we were, Joy Newfeld is Gordon Newfeld's wife. And um, we were sitting around having uh, a bit of a chat about our upcoming conference and planning our Newfeld conference. And it was just in the very early years. And I was still coordinating the conference back then. And oh, okay. I remember we had to um, come up with a title. And so 
Gordon and I, I think, were kind of in our heads about, you know, where to look at stuff and how to see it. And Joy Newfeld just said, well, it's very simply, it's just rest, play, grow. That's the developmental plan. <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. That's yeah. absolutely brilliant. And I said, Joy, can I use that for the book? I love that. That's exactly nature's intention. When you're at rest in relationships, it frees you from the pursuit of connection mm -hmm. so that you can do what nature intended you to do, which is to play, to figure out who you are, to experiment, to warm up, uh, to be free of the hunger for connection so that you can... Uh, you know, enter this place of, of where self-actualization and growth occurs. And, and that growth is, is the byproduct of being at rest and at play. And we don't have to push growth. It's where we get to. Mm -hmm. and, and, and obviously that's a beautiful trajectory that we don't have to push growth. We don't have to push a child to act mature. We don't have to reward them or punish yeah. them to get there. Mm -hmm. That if we understand the developmental agenda that it's rest, play, and grow that we've got all the ingredients. And so, of course, where do we do our work? Well, we, we work at rest, and we work at providing the conditions for play, and then we can let nature take the wheel and know that growth is there and that we're we're doing our part of the plan yeah. uh, to unlock this potential and so on. So this was Joy Neufeld's idea, hmm. uh, the title, and I thought it was brilliant. And then it was about preschoolers. Uh, and young children, so we decided to go against uh, the title young children just because you can be young at heart and not a child, so the, yeah. the word young uh, needs to be preserved, that we can mm -hmm. all feel quite young and playful, but um, this isn't just for children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we went with preschoolers, you could call it kindergartners or toddlers, now we've yeah. got all these names, but we went with preschoolers. Um, and when I had given a list, you know, making sense of preschoolers, making sense meaning we want insight into who they are, what their needs are, so that we can provide for them. But when I sent a list of titles to Gordon, uh, he was in the middle of a, a meeting with some of our other staff at the Newfield Institute. And I had titles like, you know, making sense of preschoolers, helping them thrive, helping them flourish. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I was very happy to have done this, this finished writing this book. I was, it feels like you're giving birth. <laughs> you want to give it a yeah. nice name, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. so at the very end, I was just thinking about some, as I was writing the book, I was thinking about some adults I know who behave as preschoolers mm. for various different reasons. Part of one of, one of which has or an organic brain issue, a dementia mm who I watched her regress, uh, someone I loved, uh, regress into uh, preschool years. Yeah. And um, so I was having, as I was thinking about her, I was thinking about immaturity and, and immature adults I know as I was going through it, and I was thinking, wow, you know, this applies to them. Mm -hmm. Everything I'm writing about applies still to immaturity across the thing. So I, I wrote in the bottom of the email, or I could just call it, uh, you know, as a PS, or I could just call it making sense of preschoolers or anyone who acts like one. Oh, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, it was a joke. It was a joke. Right? It was a total joke. And then within like 15 minutes, I got a call and it's like, Deborah, it's Gordon. <laughs> like, hi. Oh, he says, I've just had a bit of a group meeting here. We've taken a consensus. I'm going to tell you what the book title should be. And he told me that. And I'm like, Jordan, uh, Gordon. Get lost. I'm not naming it that. And he said, no, Deborah, it is the title. And let me explain why. And as he, out, as he outlined his thoughts, he says, first of all, it's just very funny. And it does also, get a laugh. It it, but it's true, though. It yeah. is actually true because yeah. we're forced to look at our own immaturity, which is part of parenthood, yeah. uh, is it does grow us up. And that was the end title, of course, how children grow 
uh, how adults grow children up was the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And I knew instantly that the last chapter was going to be how children grow adults up. Yeah. And because there's the force back and forth developmentally, it's this beautiful paradox yeah. that we grow in the process of growing our children up. It's just beautiful when you see it. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought that sometimes we get stuck. Like we don't all fully get across the line in terms of maturity. <laughs> and, um, you know, until they lower you in the grave, then we know where you got. There's always an opportunity right. to grow. But stuckness is stuckness, no matter what age, and we can. There is the possibility that we fail to mature, and I don't think that construct really exists. We understand immature behavior. Mm-hmm. We'll say that person isn't very mature. Look at that, and we can identify sort of problems in behavior. But the construct of maturity, as being missing, and that development hasn't been complete, mm-hmm. is something that really I don't think hits consciousness in the same oh, way. Oh yeah. I think that, you know, where it gets, where we use the word immature is typically when people are being playful. Yeah. Like when people are being silly. Yeah. We say, oh, grow up, you know, yes. that's playfulness or that you're acting like a child or that sort right. of thing. But real, truly immature behavior, we label that as, you know, you're abusive or you're um, an asshole or you're, you know, yeah. we, we label, we give those yeah. other labels as yeah. opposed to just labeling it as raw immaturity because yeah. that person can't regulate yeah they don't have mixed feelings they you know yeah. so they act out the frustration they have a temper yeah. tantrum yeah. but when you're not two or three you're just a jerk when you have a temper tantrum you're <laughs> yes. not you don't get the yeah. the kind label of being immature but if we could yeah. really see that and yes. what was really going on you know and it would make so much sense with their teens mm-hmm. that are stuck or that behave as preschoolers because of they're going through another big developmental transition. Um, they're not preschoolers, but the self-absorption that you see in preschoolers, the uh, you know lack of adaptability, um, mm-hmm. the lack of um, being a social being and, and truly making sense of another person's experience. Uh, you know, Im- immaturity looks pretty consistent. Yeah. That's for sure. And so the sources of that immaturity, um, you know, we go back to the emotional piece and we go back to the relational piece. And so we know that those are still opportunities when those conditions are met. We know that the opportunity for growth is still there. So it's been interesting. I found, you know, surprisingly so, I found that um, people with teens and just wanting to understand immaturity have said this book is really help me see that my kid at any age but you know obviously I wanted to choose preschoolers because I also find that a lot of books about kids Mm. tend to glum them into the same sort of category like it's just talking about kids right the preschool is a huge spectrum the the preschooler period is one of the most unique developmental periods uh, in our in our um, maturation and they are so fundamentally different. The preschooler personality is so fundamentally different. Uh, once you're over that age, five to seven, you know, if, if development has unfolded, you just don't see the world the same way. You don't make sense of it the same way. You yeah. have this mixing of feelings and thoughts that brings the world into view into such a complex way. But preschoolers, I think, baffle adults because we yeah. have a totally different psychology. So I thought, I must, I can't just write about childhood, I must write about preschoolers, because I think they're the great misunderstood. Yeah, 
such a common error to just mm -hmm. project our adult mm -hmm. um, way of thinking onto them. Like it's just, it's so easy for parents to assume that their child is, you know, doing something deliberately or that there's something the matter with them because they're happy one minute and sad the next. And, you know, I think they're provoking me because they've got this smile on their face. And, you know, I don't think they're serious about that feeling because now look they're happy two seconds later so you know what was that there's just so much mm -hmm. insight missing from mm -hmm. um yeah just around preschoolers yeah the lack of impulse control i think you're right is yeah. absolutely if i had to my, put my finger on one thing that baffles the most of all like that would be at the height mm -hmm. of uh, frustration or just even just confusion is their their lack of control around their emotions their mm -hmm. body sometimes um, not having words, it being full of physical release, you know, when stirred up, and just not understanding that even though they can be so logical and understand the world uh, in in and verbalize it, that they just miss the uh, they're missing that piece that can temper themselves. Yeah, <laughs> it's not on purpose. They'll tell you that they don't want to hit their brother one minute and you know, five minutes later, it'll come out again. They'll be like, yeah. I just made a mistake. I forgot. I didn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. they're not, that's how they're, um, that's how the brain development is so immature. Yeah. 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 And you talked about, like, you kind of alluded to the whole alpha thing there where you said that, you know, it's the parent's responsibility mm -hmm. to take care of them and the parent's responsibility to provide the conditions for them to grow up. But so often, I think that parent-child relationship is viewed as, you know, a working relationship where mm -hmm. it's like, work with me here. Like, mm -hmm. we need to get to this place together. So when I tell you to do something, mm -hmm. when I tell you three times mm -hmm. and you don't do it, you don't listen, i.e. obey, right? There's that sort of frustration. Well, you know, I, you know, I have to yell at you because we have to work together to get the housework done. And there's sort of this view that's um, so common that I hear parents mm -hmm. talking about that, you know, we're all kind of in this together and we all need to work together. And it's like a sh idea of shared responsibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you clearly lay out that, no, it's, it's the parent's responsibility mm -hmm. to, you know, handle these affairs mm -hmm. and provide those so the child can actually rest as yeah. opposed to take that on yeah right? and I think you know what Gordon says so beautifully in this way uh, is that that distinction in taking the lead is where we as parents meet their needs rather than simply meet their demands mm. uh, and and it's such an important distinction to get and it's right. the depth of his work that I appreciate so much because otherwise you can just simply give very you know <sighs> simple window dressing to this but understanding that fundamentally what a parent does is they read the needs they have to understand and have sort of an emotional pulse on their kid or just like we do with you know the gut or the body we're mm -hmm. trying to understand okay well what is this about you know does this child have gas you know is that why mm -hmm. their tummy's upset are they full of missing we don't always know uh, what it is as a parent but we use that insight and that relationship to try to make sense of our kids for the purpose of caretaking. And so our kids can be full of lots of demands, but my goodness, and lots of feelings. But if we follow those feelings, if we follow their demands, 
uh, and we don't use our insight, if we don't seek to make sense, if we don't um, come from that place of where we feel responsible for making those decisions in those best in their best interests, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, then what happens is that we get thrown out of that leadership position. Yeah. We got to meet their de- meet their needs and not their demands. So, for example, uh, you know, m- my kids might say, you know, I I, uh, I want you to play with me right now or do something with me. You know, I'm bored. Um, and the demand is is that I need something to do or I don't know. I'm in that place where I don't have anything. I'm feeling some emptiness and so the demand is is fill my emptiness for me Mm. and I get that I mean I understand that I'm glad they would turn to me for that but their need is for to be at rest so that they can play Mm -hmm. usually independently or with with the sibling or hopefully independently but so my the need that I see there is is how do I bring this child to rest so that they can go off and do something and play or something that's going to nourish them so the need is for me to answer that hunger for connection and find a way to do that uh, in whatever I'm facing, making dinner, whatever that might be, you know, doing laundry, the real stuff we have to do and still have to keep on doing. But Making it, dinner so you can provide for their needs. And <laughs> exactly. Provide for the gut that is also needing nourishment. You know, and so I think as parents, we're constantly faced with, well, you know, if we haven't got there ahead of our kids, they're full of demands. It means oftentimes we've missed something, and that, that will happen. But how do we take care of those ch- that child's needs and understanding the need? Well, no, it's not going to look like this right now. No, I can't play with you, um, but I am going to help you this way because I can see this is a problem for you or that you're not sure what to do, or you can come and help me make dinner or, you know what I mean? Like So it's mm-hmm. from that place, a, a true alpha caretaker is trying to make sense, is trying to read it's trying to take the lead. It's trying to provide for needs. It's uh, not just simply meeting demands. You'll notice in nowhere did I say is perfect. Because <laughs> that's just not, that's a futile pursuit mm-hmm. is to be perfect. Yeah. We won't always get it right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting how you were talking about how you ended the book with um, saying how, or acknowledging how they grow you up, right? Yeah. Like they, they are this huge invitation to step up and be that alpha or be that answer or, mm-hmm. you know, get it together so that <laughs> they can rest into your invitation, right? But, uh, you know, that's a huge message of hope because I remember when I first started learning about this, I thought, oh, no, you know, we're in such a bind here as a as a collective yeah. because nobody who has children is grown up yet <laughs> in our society. <laughs> like, I just had this pure hopelessness. <laughs> Where I've thought, like, you know, more often than not, parents who, you know, have many children or um, who are young when they, you know, have children, it seems like that sort of, you know, parents are driven to have children when they absolutely can't take care of them. There's so many parents who would be brilliant, amazing parents, but they're choosing not to have children. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of that hmm, like, are we devolving or what's going on here kind yeah. of thing. But, um, yeah, when I heard that, I was kind of, it restored my hope. Of like, oh, right, mm-hmm. this is actually an opportunity for parents mm-hmm. to grow up. You don't have to mm-hmm. be there. Yeah, you exactly. You can grow up through your child. Yeah, and right? being the answer to your child uh, in focusing on them rather than on ourselves 
it's actually where we have the impetus to grow most of all because mm-hmm. it, it reveals in us where we fall short, where we mm. want to be the answer, where we aren't the answer, uh, where our love for right. us drives us into that place of, uh, of wanting to wrestle with the things that are most difficult. I don't think I've ever grown uh, as much as by focusing on myself, that's for sure, as in trying to focus on another person and being the answer to my children. My goodness. It's been incredible, uh, that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're really largely unconscious in the first year of life. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, um, they just want to be close to us, have the consistency of care and, um, you know, the have the, uh, you know, invitation for contact and closeness kind of cemented there. And, you know, it's beautiful to think that we've got this warm-up uh, into, you know, the tantrums that will come, uh, you know, in the toddler and the mobility that is there and the increasing appetite for autonomy like all of these things are gently warmed up you know in as a young child grows so we've got lots of opportunity to get there but one of my favorite lines in Gordon's Ford was you know I hope it uh, assures you um, that you you didn't have to be fully mature mm. before you had kids like I hope that's the message that you get right. in reading this book um, is yeah. that maturity isn't a requirement now we can't be you know, falling apart everywhere, but at the same, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, um, this idea that we're going to be fully emotionally mature and not be triggered by our kids or not struggle. I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, it's neurotic at best. It's, yeah. it's just not going to happen. Yeah. You know, I said to a, a mom the other day I was working with, you know, if you're waiting to be perfect here and to fix yourself in order to be that for your kids, you'll die before that happens. Right. Yeah. You know, they need you now. Yeah. And and you are finding a way through. Your child trusts you with their tears. Your child trusts you with the things that aren't working. They turn to you. Mm-hmm. They look to you to be their answer. Like, this dance is happening mm-hmm. well, even in all your imperfection. Mm-hmm. You're their answer. It's beautiful when you look at nature's design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how do you coach parents to kind of work with that, right? So your children, of course, they're going to push... The buttons in you more strongly than mm-hmm. than anyone else like me having no children I could have this idea of myself that I'm so calm and patient or whatever right but I don't have toddlers pushing those buttons so I don't get to see those shadowy mm-hmm. parts of myself that may actually be there mm-hmm. I may need to be mm-hmm. grown up more than I think or something right but a parent has this beautiful opportunity to have that mm-hmm. revealed to them when they become you know, impatient or whatever mm-hmm. the case is, right? Mm-hmm. So so what do they do with that? They get triggered, all this stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. Then what? Like, what do they do with that? Well, it's a good question. And, and everybody, first of all, I would say that, you know, growth opportunities are everywhere. And trying to be the answer to somebody is, is uh, whether you're a counselor or a social worker or, you know, you work in medicine or you're a teacher, there's opportunities where we all try to take care of others and certainly test us to, to mm. grow. Um, when it's close to home like this and it's your child, mm. <laughs> it is pretty provocative. Um, and I think, you know, what I see in parents is they just don't want to hurt their kids. They want to do the right thing. And sometimes they feel paralyzed to know what that is. Uh, sometimes they react out of their own emotions very quickly, are very reactive. I know certainly as a new parent. I would be caught surprised, you know, uh, by some stuff, especially with my eldest. Um, and, you know, you have to kind of sit back and go, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? 
if I had to go back and talk to myself, uh, you know, with everything that I was learning and understanding about preschoolers as a, as a time, uh, you know, as a new parent, I would say uh, be more curious about behavior. You don't have to react uh, mm. right away. Uh, be more curious, sit back, try to understand what's going on here. Uh, do no harm to your relationship in the moment. Take care of the situation. Make sure nobody gets harmed as much as you can. Uh, mm -hmm. Preserve order. Um, take the lead, you know. Convey what isn't okay, you know. That's not okay. Sisters aren't for throwing, you know. Um, uh, you know, chairs are for sitting on. Um, no, that isn't your chair. That's your sister's chair or your brother's chair. You know, like, just very simple messages that just need to come down, which is, that's not okay. Uh, yeah. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of this. And to be much more curious and, and to try to just step into that place where you don't have to fix it, but you can just sit with what is not working mm. and examine those uh, emotions maybe later. Just get on with the business of your day. There's lots of structure. There's lots of routine things to do with kids, you know, that is very easy from reading a book to going to play in the park to feeding them something. I mean, it's not rocket science what a preschooler or a young child needs, you know, so you just get on with the caretaking aspects but you can have room to sit and think about your own reactions and your own feelings and your own um you know i wish i did it differently or i wish i you know i miss seeing this i wish i could do it again differently and you know you will invariably if you have preschoolers you will get an opportunity very quickly to do something different like they'll right. have another temper tantrum yeah, like pretty quickly like <laughs> 10 minutes down the line you, there's could, an opportunity. you could have an opportunity closer <laughs> than you uh than you really wanted mm -hmm. and i remember that as a parent i would go to bed at night and you know your guilt does beautiful work on you <laughs> uh and, you know it's like oh i wish i didn't do that i wish i'd done it differently or sometimes it's like wow look what i did that's fantastic you know that really mm -hmm. i'm really happy with that but more often than not where i grew I said, I completely disagree with myself. I don't like how that I showed up there. What was going on for me? What do I need to do? How, if I had to replay uh, time, how would I do that differently? And it was in those moments of reflection, mm -hmm. uh, feeling all the feelings, uh, or mm -hmm. as many as I could hold on to, uh, that I became a, a better parent and I grew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd say, don't fight your imperfections. Make room for them out of the children's eyes. Uh, as much as possible, find some space to do that, uh, and um, and uh, just show up uh, with new intentions each day. That's, you know, every morning I was very grateful. It's always a new morning, mm -hmm. another day of temper tantrums, another day, <laughs> another day to do it differently. Uh, and, and also the message that, oh my goodness, this mm -hmm. isn't forever. Immaturity is just only supposed to last so long. Right. <laughs> There's yeah. an end game here. Yeah. You know, by the time a child's four to five, you might start to see some tempering behavior. Like it should be a short window here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes those days can feel very long. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I know what you mean by tempering and the mixed feelings, so that, you know, that's sort of what we mean by. Um, becoming mature right getting mm -hmm. the tempering elements mixing mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. um, we have civilized behavior but maybe explain that a little yeah. bit more because i think that's a concept that is very foreign yeah outside i haven't heard it anywhere else other than gordon newfeld's work no i don't know if anybody else is no i think of, you're right he, he really put those pieces together but it makes sense in terms of all development yeah um yeah, the brain integration. So preschoolers are very pure 
in terms of their thought and feeling. There's only one at a time. So if you wanted, wanted to study human emotion, studying joy, you'd take a preschooler. It's <laughs> experiencing joy. And it's just, it's incredible. Like to be around a joyful preschooler, it's just, you can feel it. It's just so nourishing. It's so joyful. You know, there's no doubt in their mind. Why? Because there's only yeah. room for one emotion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that can turn on a dime very quickly. Yeah. And they can be completely distraught or sad or dug into resistance or whatever. So they mm -hmm. flip very easily. But if the brain integration is there, it can handle more signals. The reason the preschooler brain can't handle more than one signal is it's trying to identify and lock in that signal so that the brain can have the purity of the signals uh, that don't conflict with each other so that it can understand the world one piece at a time. The brain doesn't do multiple pieces at a time because the signals conflict and don't mix. Mm -hmm. So the preschooler brain is trying to lock on to one signal at a time in order to develop it. You know, and all those pieces that come into view over time, you know, takes uh, on average, you know, four to five to six years. Uh, by seven, most kids, if they're not too sensitive, and meaning that they have an enhanced receptivity to the world and take in more signals, um, will get there, meaning that the brain will have sufficient development of each of these signals that the moratorium on um, only looking at one thing at a time comes to a close and the brain starts to allow for this beautiful integration. In the neuroscientific literature, you know, they look at it as, as executive functioning mm -hmm. um, of the development of the prefrontal cortex. All the literature, all the neuroscientific literature converges on this age as a time when the prefrontal cortex in this mixing capacity, they can feel both sad and, uh, and um, or, or frustrated and uh, caring at the same time, which starts to temper their behavior. So they want to hit, but they can also hold on to the fact that they care about the person that they might hit. And you can see this in the preschooler, you know, who's moving into kindergarten years, and they shake and they shudder, and they're, they're paralyzed by the <laughs> mixing of these two opposite thoughts and emotions. One part of me wants to do this, one part of me wants to do this. I knew when one of my daughters had got there when she came out of school, I can't remember if it was kindergarten, grade one-ish, and I said, how was your day-to-day? -day? And if you ask a preschooler of this, it's whatever happened in the 10 minutes prior. <laughs> it was great! It was, or it was awful. You know, they had a great day, but, you know, they might have fallen down. It was bad. It was the worst day ever. So preschoolers always jump to what's most salient because that's the dominant emotion or thought. But my daughter came out and I said, How's it, how was it today? And she goes, oh, mommy, it was come see, come sa, you know, in French for so good, so bad. It was you know, a little bit good, a little bit bad. And uh, I'm just like, oh, my goodness, there's two. We've got both good and bad all together, wow. you know. It's, and I thought, ah, we've got the integration. That would be thoughts, you know, it was good and come see, come sa. So, um, yeah, it was great. And it just happens naturally. You don't have to force it. But that's when a child becomes more tempered because their impulses, when they go to react, there is a thought or a feeling that says, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. It's like the, you know, in, in past times you used to have the, in religious, uh, you know, they used to have the devil and the angel on mm -hmm. your shoulder. I remember that from the cartoons. Yeah. Well, the devils and the angels talk and it was very, you know, um, uh, based in sort of this religious metaphor of, um, you know, these two sides pulling you in different directions and feeling quite paralyzed by this conversation. But when you look at neuroscience, 
It absolutely is this paralysis that comes with the mixing of feelings and thoughts. But their brains are too immature. It takes five to seven years for this conversation to start, this conscious yeah. consciousness to start. And it's beautiful when it does. But they're no longer a preschooler then. Yeah. And there is something lost. Yeah. You know, we never see that. The purity. beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or I don't know if you've heard the Cherokee two wolves story. Mm-hmm. Have you? There's a traditional Cherokee story where it says there's two wolves inside of you and they're kind of fighting. It's exactly mm-hmm. the same as the the devil and the angel on the shoulder, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, it. I've seen it used and told in a sort of cognitive behavior way where people try to spin it like, use positive thinking to have the good wolf win, but I really don't think that that was its intention. I, I, I've told it to kids and stuff like that, and I really use it as a integration tool, right? Mm-hmm. Like. You, you get some puppets out, right, and these wolves mm-hmm. are fighting, and one of them wants to care, mm-hmm. and the other one is frustrated, and, you know, you get those two pieces acting out that that play of, mm-hmm. you know, the two sides of them, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the wolf had such a metaphorical representation of selfhood in that, yeah. in that um, message, in that story to people mm-hmm. that this was a side of the self, this was of the self. Uh, yeah. And the conflict that we experience inside of ourselves sometimes that when you move out of the preschooler years and nothing is ever black or white again, yeah. it shouldn't be. There's an age of reason uh, that is we're on the threshold of, you know, there's a, the world starts to blend into gray and we're supposed to think our way through this. But before these years, you know, we're supposed to, there's just supposed to be a moratorium on all this. Mm-hmm. It's just about letting the world come into view one, one piece at a time. But I think people are very much in a hurry. They don't give their preschoolers the space. It's like yeah. we expect them to multitask. We expect them to understand context. Uh, we think that, you know, uh, putting them together with the same age peers, uh, that, you know, they're going to be socialized by each other. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Yeah, exactly. We're going to teach them to share. <laughs> There's no sharing. There's only me or you. <laughs> There's no we in the preschooler. It's either yeah. the focus on the self or completely on the other person so that they've lost their self. So we just, I just think we just don't understand the science of this age. Mm-hmm. Culture used to protect immaturity and give them the space they needed, but I think now we're just in a big hurry. And so they don't seem to have the same space yeah. to be just really immature. Can you think of some examples of how culture pro- protected immaturity like one thing that comes to mind for me is I heard Bruce Perry say in a talk once that the tribal ratio of adults to children used to be nine to one Mm -hmm. so I think right there in and of itself if you have nine adults to every child you're protecting immaturity absolutely and that's just their you know population or you know they're not sending six children to one in a daycare we flip the ratio around yeah it's yeah the opposite so immature like we're outnumbered by immature people first of all in those settings you're the adults are usually um yeah uh yeah overpowered <laughs> which is Sometimes. an automatic recipe for <laughs> yeah. absolute chaos yes. right like think about six toddlers running That's around right. right now there's no way we could record a yeah. podcast no someone's <laughs> gonna get bitten you know it's just a matter of time <laughs> So, yeah, no, so I think that that, uh, you know, social, cultural, anthropological understandings of how we, you know, the context in which we raised our kids, yes, it's very different. There's also multiple ages, so that child was also around 
older kids. And yeah. if you you know you've ever been around multi-age kids, you know that with proper caring and instincts, you know kids take care of each other, and there is a, a general ordering um, of and, and caring behavior that comes out of them. But we have same-aged uh, groupings now, which doesn't draw out caring. It usually draws out competition and who's going to lead and who's going to follow. Mm-hmm. So that draws out uh, some conflict. Um, excuse me. I would say that the other thing that's really changed is that, you know, when you look, I found this in the research for Rest, Play, Grow, that when you look across time uh, and place, what you see is that children, there wasn't an expectation on children to work mm. um, in terms of chores or formal learning, or even learning to read, Mm. until about the age of six. And that's pretty consistent cross-cultural, that the age of reason, there was this cross-cultural understanding that most of these things started at six. And it's Mm -hmm. it's quite fascinating to see this, um, that this was really reserved, um, that the work that requires mixed feelings, because part of you is frustrated, but part of you knows you have to do a task, Mm-hmm. So you have to delay gratification. Yeah, uh, that's the def- that's the easiest definition of work, is to have be able to be cap- capable of sacrifice. No preschooler does sacrifice; they're only built for play. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, cross culturally, you see that this is the age when most kids would move into more of a work motif in terms of um, uh, contributing uh, in some way, but otherwise getting a free pass. Yeah, you yeah, know, and the, the role is to work. Yeah. She likes jewelry. Yeah, it's your cat. It <laughs> likes me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to okay. quickly send a quick text here. Anyways, I'm going to go like that to indicate that I need to get that edited out. I realize I forgot to text Carrie and just tell her that we're here. Okay. Hi. I'm allergic to you, so I'm not petting you. Oh, are you allergic? Yeah, but as long as I don't touch and touch oh, my face okay, and stuff, okay. good. Otherwise, I, I like cats. I love cats. The house was cleaned um, yesterday too. So. Oh yeah, no worries. I'm not we finding any it? problem uh, being it. It's just if I touch it, then whatever I touch, it'll go into. Your I'm eyes done. I'm just like then itching and. Actually, Carrie's allergic to cats too. Get out of town. Yeah, and um, but she's kind of been able to adapt to yeah. these cats more specifically but still she can't touch her eye or anything yeah. so yeah. so that's why we have to have like the oh house, that like vacuumed sense. and stuff all the time yeah that's probably and why i'm like, not reacting then yeah, yeah yeah our the house cleaner just came yesterday um and like she vacuums all the they hair and like just and you're on mats and stuff i noticed yeah, yeah yeah so same thing but that they are beautiful yeah house. oh wow you made a friend eh, yeah. flash can I take a picture of you oh, two yeah. together? That's very good. Oh, no, don't move now. <laughs> Flash. You're funny. Uh, they know, eh? Oh, they're yeah. They're so funny. It's like they're how so, pure counter will, hey? Like, they're just emotion. They are creatures of emotion. They just do do. She do felt sense. my agenda, and she yeah. was like, no, yeah, she's no, done. I'm done. Yeah, You're or hilarious. mine. We're having a picture. Oh, my goodness. Hi, Flash. Yeah, okay, so I don't know where we were, but you, you were talking about their job is... Oh, the age of reason. Yeah, and you you said their job is to play at that younger age, so do you want to go into some play sure. theory? Sure, so, um, you know, this has been so exciting to watch Gordon Neufeld come mm-hmm. alive with his 
uh, just absolutely blossoming uh, in understanding the role of play and development. Not that he didn't ever understand it, but just to put more pieces together and to see it kind of take a new level of depth. Oh, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the conditions that are... Why play is so important is because it is a suspension from the reality of life. It's a place that our kids enter into that is free of consequences or working at an outcome uh, that allows them to show up and express who they are. It's a place that is free of agendas on the outside. And as long as everybody's safe in the sense of emotionally being safe or physically safe, there's a lot of freedom there. And it should really pull you in. And and this place of play is is kind of like, um, you know, Gordon talks about it being like a sphere or a bubble that's out of everyday life. You know, people might call it as sort of an altered consciousness even. I don't see it that way. But just this um, place that is removed of everyday expectations that allows one to experiment, to discover, to unfold, to for emotions to come up, emotions that don't have any words, whatever's stirred up inside of you. Um, you know, play is the place where it can get acted out. Uh, you know, I heard a, someone told, tell me the other day when I was talking about play that her aunt in World War II, when there was bombs dropping, that the kids were told, obviously, you can't go outside to play. Wow, and yeah. so what they would do is they'd stay in the house... And she remembers distinctly, her aunt remembers distinctly how they put a tablecloth. <laughs> going right for the microphone. Oh, Flash. And kitty cat likes that yeah, microphone. Yeah. Come on, Flash. Come here. That's well, going to that's gonna sound funny on there. She wants to be a part of this. Yeah, she does. <laughs> um, She's got some ideas to share. Yeah. So they would play at the um, table and they put a tablecloth over the table and the kids would hide underneath it while one person pounded on the table and oh, made the sounds geez. of like bombs so they played bombs dropping yeah while the bombs were dropping yeah. now what a perfect refuge yeah that would not have felt real even though they were in a real environment yeah and the safety that that play would provide in terms of acting out the emotions that would be stirred up uh, it was interesting, though, the lady who told me the story said that, you know, she always thought it was peculiar. She said she understood a lot more after talking about play. But she said when her and her daughter had a car accident, a really bad car accident, I think her daughter was about six or seven, she wouldn't stop talking about the car accident mm. and the sights and the sounds and the bangs and the, you know, just the alarm that was in this child as a result of this car accident was really quite clear and ongoing. And she said, I don't know what possessed me, but I just went into the backyard and into the alley. And I got four chairs and put them in the alley driveway, you know, drive through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I put her in the front seat, like those four chairs would be the car. And I put her in the driver's seat and said, okay, we're just going to play it driving. And she said her daughter just acted out mm -hmm. driving, crashing, banging stories and she said we just played it out and out and out until there was nothing left yeah and you realize that you know play serves so many functions not only does it help a child experiment discover it processes emotions that can't come into consciousness that are too big too much too difficult yeah. to name 
it helps you figure out who you are, what your interests are, you know, um, and what you're drawn to. And, and when I was writing Rest, Play, Grow, and as I was reflecting on my kids playing, I realized that it was so, sort of like they're listening to this. There, there's a resonance inside of a child mm-hmm. that when they land on something in play, that seems to answer something emotionally instinctive inside of them. Mm-hmm. You just see it grabs them. Yeah. And it, it's like it opens up this perfect channel for expression inside of them. Like mm-hmm. one of my daughters, I hear it when she sings. And she just I just hear it open up that her songs and what she expresses is just this incredible, uh, beautiful channel into wherever she's at at that time and allows for expression. Um, and the other one is, you know, just the stories that she tells and um, her capacity to invent things uh, is like this doorway into her that opens up. And it's incredible to listen to. It doesn't make sense half the time. You know, I don't know what it necessarily is about, but it's incredible how play is meant to um, draw you out in this way and as a result, you are transformed mm-hmm. uh, and you grow, you know, piece by piece by piece. And it, of course, isn't something that a video game could do. It's not something that a book gives you. It's not something that uh, you might find in a group of kids where mm-hmm. one child is leading the play and everybody else is following. But to me, it's just an, a fascinating temporary release from yeah. the realities of life that allow you to grow. Well, have you as a therapist ever used closed-eye processes with people where they were using their imagination or like or I'm thinking of you know EMDR therapy or there's a bunch of therapies or or you know practices that therapists mm-hmm. use to act, help one access mm-hmm. their imagination mm-hmm. and I've never heard of or seen or had an experience of anything bad coming out of an experience like that mm-hmm. right like when you kind of access yourself or mm-hmm. someone guides you to find an answer or solution mm-hmm. or get that piece mm-hmm. that you needed, that your brain needed to integrate in order to heal that wound that happened mm-hmm. in childhood or whatever the case may be. But it's you know a very similar mm-hmm. thing in terms of accessing that particular, that place, that place mm-hmm. that's not real, it's an imaginal realm. Mm-hmm. Imagine, image, you know, you're accessing an image that mm-hmm. is, you know, from a higher, if you will, from a mythic mm-hmm. sort of place that has the the components or the key mm-hmm. to to resolving the issue, mm-hmm. right? And and I know G- Gordon correlates therapy and play, mm-hmm. right? But have you um, well, I, I yeah, that I mean, in therapy too. Well, it's such an interesting question, and I mean, it's something that you, I don't think you intentionally aim for it. At least mm-hmm. I don't. Um, but it's a place that you end up often. Mm. And uh, I can think of lots of examples where play has come into the counseling process. Like if I'm working more one-on-one with an individual, say, versus parent consulting or counseling, which would be a bit different where Mm -hmm. you're really trying to make sense of a child three-dimensionally. But if I'm working with an individual, and and it's individual counseling, I would say play often does enter. uh, You know, and sometimes it's this symbolic uh, representation uh, of where we're at, that words is a, is often a luxury mm-hmm. that we can't always find 
you know, as a doorway for expression. And words are very limiting in yeah. terms of expression. If you ever tried to write, you realize how painful it is <laughs> to try to capture the essence of something in a word. Oh. Uh, you know, and so you realize how wonderful and expressive play is mm-hmm. uh, and nonverbal forms are. But I will sometimes say to my clients, you know, uh, you, I don't, they'll say, I don't know how to describe it. And then I'll just say, well, don't like just mm-hmm. what's the, what's the sense you have or what color does it have? Or where does it, is it in your body? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, depression, you know, this, I, people would give me images. I feel like I'm in a box. Mm-hmm. It's a box with corners and I, you know, with a closed door and I'm in cornered in here. Or, you know, another client said, it's like I have hot coals uh, burning coal in my stomach. Mm. Um, you know, and I had, a, I've had many clients, especially with trauma background who just start to put a lot of, uh, their expression, uh, they say, I don't know what it is. I started out this picture and I was, you know, painting or drawing and I think this is what it is. You know, it's a big, uh, boat on an ocean all by itself. And so, you know, once I got these, this image out, then I can understand that this is now, these are some of the words that would go with it. It's lonely, but I was surprised because I'm also afraid and I don't know what that is. And then, you know, a big octopus would be lurking underneath the surface. Mm. And, you know, just the story that one could tell through images. And, and one mm-hmm. of our own faculty members, Gail Carney, mm-hmm. uh, who was an incredible uh, artist, and she said that when she went to study for the Banff um, Art Center, she won or got some sort of uh, sabbatical to go there mm-hmm. and study her art. Uh, she said, I didn't know what my pictures would be about, but these images would start to appear. And that's how I saw the world was just through images. And it was only after I put the images onto the page that I would then start to to discover the words that were underneath mm-hmm. it. And she would tack those onto the bottom of the picture yeah. The little tacks, these are the words. And they only came out after the images mm-hmm. were there. And she said, what I realized is that in play, there were no defenses mm. against these words and these feelings that were there. Because play is this place that is free of that need to explain or to have outcomes or to make it real. Yeah. And so it allows for that expression in a safe way. And only when she was kind of ready... You know, did her her consciousness move to make sense of it in a deeper way? Uh, and I thought it's just it's so powerful, you know, how guided imagery or all these things that we try to tap into, even dream analysis mm-hmm. uh, that I've used with clients and just understanding one's dreams in the waking day, in the conscious awareness, what we can try to make sense of. And, of course, what's the purpose? The purpose is, of course, is making sense of ourselves and our emotions and our instincts. The more we make sense of it, the more we have words for it and insight, we can put our hand on the on the steering wheel and say, well, this is what I intend to do with these instincts and emotions now that I have consciousness around mm-hmm. it. And that, of course, leads to more maturity. Yeah. And yeah, so that's definitely. the reason, you know, it's always the path to growth. It's always the path to maturity. Yeah. Uh, but there's no one right way to do play, that's for sure. Yeah. And oftentimes just identifying it and naming it can oh. diffuse its power so much, right? Well, you, you feel yeah. like you have some consciousness and conflict or decision to make around it. Rather than something driving you, mm-hmm. It you can put your hand on the wheel and say, I, I okay, I get it. What do I choose to do with this now that I understand it mm-hmm, this way? Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I think people think of play, well, I did, as, you know, skipping off into the sunset. You know, like we think of play as like, you know, drawing some, you know, lines on the... Mm -hmm. Uh, sidewalk and hopscotch and you know mm -hmm. when you see that quintessential child just mm -hmm. being very playful right and I had no concept of how I played until I mm -hmm. dug into it at the play intensive mm -hmm. workshop that Gordon held and I realized that there were so many other forms of play like the mm -hmm. alarm based play that I mm -hmm. had as a child and I look at my friend's child who he has to line up all the cars and you can't interrupt that he has to get through all of the cars and they have to be lined up on the top of the couch and that's what he does every morning mm -hmm. and I, I get now that this is a form of alarm play that he he has to do and mm -hmm. I know that he's a very sensitive child and that he he must feel this sense of, you know, unsafety at some level or kind of disorder within, you know, and he, he needs to make order. And, and I, I used to do the same things with my little trolls, you know, the trolls with the fluffy <laughs> yeah. hair that were the thing in those. the yeah. 90s or whatever. I used to line the trolls up all against my wall, just shortest to tallest, and then I'd dismantle the trolls, and then I'd do yeah. kind of, I'd do shapes, and, yeah. you know, the tallest troll in the center, and all the way down, and then I'd do colors, and yeah. I just needed to bring some sort of order to this alarm that was inside of me. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't see that as playing, really, but now when I think about it, I thought I was just, you know, cleaning up or making my room orderly, Yeah. right? But this was my way of creating some safety within myself. I've got this. Yeah. <laughs> and and what a beautiful way to do that without having to say the words, I feel unsafe. Yeah. Which serves the emotion, yeah. you know, in a child that we can't, we don't have the luxury as children in the great dependency needs we have to, to bring that kind of alarm, I think, into awareness because mm -hmm. it uh, is already alarming enough. Yeah. So the last thing the brain wants to do is to bring more things into consciousness that oh, could yeah. create more problems emotionally. So no, play is the answer uh, to this. It's a it's a it's a it's a big enough field that can handle any emotion we have. Uh, it, it's a place where growth uh, forwards, uh, you know, goes forward. Um, it's a place, um, you know, where we can experiment until we can get things right. You know, I, you know, when I was writing an article once on how we become parents, I realized that the birthplace, and, and I had heard Gordon say this, but I understood this at a deeper place, is I remembered back to the place that I feel my parenting began was in the caretaking that I did in my play when I was a young kid. It was mm. so much was about caretaking and expression of alpha instincts in play mm -hmm. in taking care of and creating games for my sisters and um, mm. you know just I loved the freedom that played offered um, and so you know when you even think about the birthplace of so much of who we are it's these hours that are spent in play and in retrospect yeah. it makes sense but I think the concern for parents today if we brought it to sort of the real life concern parents have is that play is seen as, as frivolous, the outcomes mm -hmm. aren't readily available or accessible, and we think, well, that's nice that you get to have that free time. But what we don't see is it's not free time. It's essentially what they need to be doing in order to be growing. 
Like that is the primary agenda here. Yes, they can do work at school. You know, someone was asking about this the other day. Well, does that mean school's bad and that we shouldn't? Mm. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that our children will have places that they need to work in their lives. Mm-hmm. But as parents, we shouldn't join that motif when it comes to home. Right, yeah. Home has to be preserved as a place of rest. But when we make our kids, you know, work for love, work for approval, we turn their play into work. They don't have the, the capacity to rest at home. It's structured activity after yeah. structured activity. Yeah. Um, you know, or they're working on instruction at schooling or they're doing playstations and video games all the time or social media for the teen. I mean, they're yeah. not at rest. Yeah. And so I think the problem is, is that home has become challenged to provide rest and has joined the work motif yeah. that our kids live in. And we just can't survive this way. Are you familiar with Stuart Brown, who wrote yes. the book play? Okay, yes. yeah, his his he's got the TED talk that's really neat too, about um, it was fascinating how his work came from looking at okay why are psychopaths the way that they are, hmm. and then I'll go to the other end of the spectrum and look at um, laureate winners. What is it that I'm like Nobel? Of? Yes, yeah. yes, Nobel Prize winners, yeah. and kind of dig into, okay, if we've got this end of the spectrum and the other end, you know, what is the factor? And he came to conclude that the psychopaths lacked play in their mm-hmm. childhood, and the Nobel Laureate Prize winners were, had rich childhood play experiences. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, he's got a whole bunch of work on play and that, but mm-hmm. but that was kind of the essence of yeah. of his lecture there. That well, and it makes so sense. Yeah, and, you know, I think what we don't get to underneath that is, yeah, absolutely, uh, we see the deficits of play and personhood and maturity and emotional well-being, and those deficits have become really clear uh, in, the, in the number of studies that they're doing in terms of children and anxiety and depression and this work here of Stuart Brown. What I think gets missed, and what I think is so important that Gordon's work brings to the surface, is that, and and why obviously rest, play, grow is a title, is that we can have the can we can have the ideal of play. We can have this be our focus, but we must remember it's not the place we start at. We have to start with rest. Because a child who isn't at rest can't play. Right. And so the question that I would have for these psychopaths is, is it the absence of play? Right. Go or back. Or the one. absence of rest. Right. That did not allow play. Because oh, if yeah, because if one is not at rest emotionally, or at rest in relationships, right, which take care of emotions, then play is a luxury. That is the modus operandi of the brain there is no growth then one is in still in the pursuit of rest right but you know there's a difference between being soothed and being satiated at this level yeah. you can soothe yourself with lots of cheap fixes and things mm-hmm. that seem to work you know as gordon newfeld says there's nothing as addictive as something that almost works <laughs> yeah right yeah. and so you can see you could get stuck in you know, uh, sort of a forward motion that seems to work and meet some levels of rest, but on a not really true rest, but it's just temporary or fleeting and doesn't go deep and it just provides, you know, some sense of connection, but the invitation isn't ongoing and unwavering or unconditional or generous. But, you know, you get some fleeting, you know, like the sexual encounter, the sexual fix, the, you know, without any sort of more vulnerability there. 
um, or the things that you collect or gamble or, you know, any of those kind of things, eating, shopping, uh, those fixes, you know, Mm -hmm. but they don't nourish and they end up leading to increased alienation of the self. Yeah. and to others and so is it the absence of play here or was it the absence of rest yeah that didn't create the conditions for play to arrive yeah, exactly because you could give children a lot of free time mm-hmm. a lot of play time you could provide them with a beautiful Absolutely. place to play mm-hmm. and things to play with and whatnot but they could be you know sitting there starving for attachment and have their brains not gonna be moved to play they're going to be Hungry for attachment. Yeah. And, rest. and you can see temper tantrums. You can see this chronic, I'm bored, I'm oh, bored. Yeah. And, you know, the simple notion that, okay, well, we'll just let a child sit in boredom then until play opens up doesn't understand that it's mm. rest that gives rise to play, mm. not boredom. Uh, boredom is the doorway through which play can open up if there's a, a child enough at rest or fulfilled that we can mm-hmm. make the leap over. <clears throat> so again, I think that's what people miss underneath play. That yes, even if we say okay, play is important and the developments that developmentalists are all on board with play. Yeah. But I don't hear a lot of people saying, well, what are the conditions that must be met for true play to arrive? Like, you know, you can have restless, lots of emotions come out in play, and that's true. But uh, this type of play that comes from rest which gives rise to uh, maturity, uh, must be predicated okay. on solid ground. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people or teachers, let's say parents, teachers, adults, kind of know at some level that relationship is important. Mm-hmm. Like, I think everyone has agreed upon that now. Yeah. Oh, relationship's important. Oh, we need to have a good relationship. But I don't think people really know what that looks like or what that means, mm-hmm. right? So this idea of, you know, oh, I need to have a good relationship. They kind of believe that, but then they're still kind of reverting back to the behaviorist styles of managing behavior, right? Like timeouts, all that, you know, mm-hmm. separation-based discipline, using consequences mm-hmm. is, the, is a huge thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how am I going to teach my child mm-hmm. how to, you know, take care of their stuff or to do their homework or whatever those agendas that we have as adults mm-hmm. are, right? So it, those things, you know, are actually the methods that are being used are sabotaging, getting in the way of that child being able to rest. So I know it's kind of a hot topic, but that's the really big disconnect mm-hmm. I see. And I think it, it really can hurt parents' feelings or make them feel, you know, kind of helpless and frustrated. It's like, well, what do I do? <laughs> That's what one of my friends said to me, Deb, you've taken, you've taken away, it all away. You've taken away my bribes, my threats, my consequences. Well, to some degree, consequences. I think you have to define what we mean by consequences. Right, but yeah. um, the act of using what a child cares about against them mm-hmm. is problematic. But acting in a child's best interest uh, as a caretaker, responsible caretaker, is exactly what we need to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I watch, if see my kid... Uh, you know, struggling on screen time or uh, play date isn't working well or I think play dates just, you know, aren't working for my kid at all, then, you know, I don't put them responsible and say, well, if you don't do that differently, then I'm going to take it away, which is about trying to get them to be responsible for their own behavior when it's very clear they can't be responsible. (laughs) 
<laughs> you take the lead in saying, no, you know what? I've, I've thought against this. I disagree with myself. We're going to just, you know, wait a little bit. They're not working right now. I've decided we're going to do something different here. And you take the lead. The consequence is really for you to realize this isn't working. I need to do something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, consequences in that, in the act of being a responsible caretaker, Absolutely. If you're a teacher in your classes, you can't let chaos take the lead. Otherwise, no child feels safe. Mm-hmm. So your your actions as a responsible caretaker, if a child needs to go and see somebody and get some help or go for a walk, then, you know, go to even just for a bathroom break. Whatever the issue is, if that's your act as a responsible caretaker and the invitation for contact and closeness isn't withdrawn, you know, that is how we take the lead. Um, but the act of saying, no, you can't have this. I'm going to teach you a lesson. You're going to learn to be more mature. Uh, no, it backfires tremendously on the relationship. So the bigger question though you're asking us is, oh my goodness. Okay. So now we all agree that relationships important. The dangerous of course, is that the more we talk about relationship and, and I see this happening in the literature now, and just even in, in parenting articles, you know, we talk about the relationship, but what gets lost is the essence here of it, mm-hmm. which is essentially this should come from a very natural place inside of you. If you have to rely on instructions or directions on how to do relationship, then you're already lost mm-hmm. because you're in your head and you're not in your heart and your heart needs to be connected to your head and they need to work together. Your heart needs to lead you in this place. This is a place of instinct and emotion. The head is basically to put the instructions on that on how we take care you know of the relationship so if that makes sense you know it all works together but we've really got to come at this from a place of yearning I love when Gordon Neufeld says yearning to be the child's answer Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how to yearn in that direction Mm -hmm. this must come from inside of you it's not a performance that we give Mm -hmm. it's actually that weighted responsibility that we feel that oh my gosh I have got to figure this out or looking at our kids and saying, wow, I, I, you know, inside our head, I feel so lost. Um, you know, I want to know what to do. I don't. Uh, you poor kid. Uh, you're <laughs> stuck with me. That's also the voice of a caretaker who really wants to be the answer here. That's a voice of guilt. It's a voice of shame that we sometimes feel when we don't have all the answers. The problem is, is that we think that's what makes us the answer to a child. It's not. Hmm. We're constantly baffled by them. But how do we show up to take care, you know, to read the needs, to meet their needs and not their demands? It's not just a posture or performance you assume. It's that place inside of you that has this deep, unwavering commitment to build an exclusive, personalized, irreplaceable uh, you know, invitation that is genera- generous to a child, uh, to build this relationship that is like a fingerprint that, you know, connects you at the heart in a very um, beautiful way. It's a dance that only when you sync up with that person, it's like this person, uh, you know, knows me at such a deep level. It's a place without words. So, like that's what we're going for right. with our children. And that takes time. And it means the, you know, it's when we stretch deep in the middle of the night or, you know, I don't want to go to bed. Or as my daughter said, I'm going to be nocturnal like my hamster. 
Uh, no, you're not. Uh, well, mommy, we have a problem because I don't like to sleep. Yeah, you sure, sure darn right we have a problem because we are going to sleep and we are diurnal, not nocturnal. Uh, you know, in those moments, it sounds very nice, you know, to talk in these poetic terms about relationship. But what does it mean? Hmm. It means when your kid throws, you know, the lunch across the room or is just picked up their sister's toy, you know, or, you know, the teenager who's just stuck their tongue out at you. Um, you know, uh, that's when love has to show up. That's when you're caretaking. Mm. You're going to be, that's when the relationship's tested. Mm. It's, uh, it's when, how do you hold on, even though the behavior divides you, how do you hold on to relationship? How do you get it through? I'm still here. You're immature. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Not taking it personally. I haven't let go of you. Yeah. <laughs> Our own defenses as adults get up oh, in the way so often. They really do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question about relationship, but I, I just, I the, the fear I have, the more we talk about attachment, the more this becomes reduced to directions, instructions, and what we do to our child rather than who we are to them. And, and that relationship that goes both ways. And fundamentally, you know, someone said this to, the, to me the other day about my book, and it's so interesting to hear people replay what has been mm. most important for them. It just is so beautiful. I love mm. hearing it from other people's perspective, perspectives. It's just, it's very rich to have it come back at me, what they heard. And uh, one woman said, you know, what I realized, Deb, is what we're missing today, this mom said, is that it's not about how much we love our children but whether or not they've given their heart to us. Yeah. Have they given their heart to us? Yeah. Lots of parents say, I love my kids. I do everything for them. But oh, do they yeah. realize this is not the answer? Deborah, your book is really important. You know, this uh, Gordon's work is really important because we don't understand this as parents, that it's really about a child's love for us that empowers us to be the answer. Yeah. Oh, I just think of Gabor Mate's stories of his... Mm-hmm parents he's worked with in the downtown east side and these are parents who've abused abandoned their children had their children apprehended what have you there's been horrendous you know violations from parent to child the horrendous stuff right and every one of those parents says i love my child mm-hmm. or i've heard so many parents say you know oh i love my child they're the world to me and i'm thinking oh yeah and then in one breath and then in the next breath turning around you know, be quiet, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. and as you were talking, I could just kind of see sort of like this big sphere sort of at the heart of things, like at the, at the core and at the center of things, do you believe your relationship with this other human being is a dynamic of getting to know, you know, and caring for and loving versus, um, I think so often the overarching identity that parents have is the person who needs to get the agendas done Mm -hmm. right like if you see children as you know thwarting your own agenda right like i've got to get the shoes on i've got to get the lunch packed and fed and we have to get out the door and it's Mm -hmm. all about agendas Mm -hmm. then of course you're not paying attention to you know the true relationship dynamic you're going to try on these little Mm -hmm. skills or techniques and kids are going to feel coerced or they'll see right through it. It's not genuine relating. Mm-hmm. It's just you trying to get that agenda. Mm-hmm. The agenda seems much more 
at the fore mm-hmm. than anything else mm-hmm. in this you know busy time and place and busy lives that we live. Yeah. Well, and certainly I think parents have so many competing pressures, competing roles, and they need their kids to almost move at the speed of light. You know, when I think about the expectations as a parent to drop them off, get lunches made, you know, get me and myself to work and showered and then think about the day and oh my goodness, dinner comes around, you got to feed everyone again. And you just think about, you know, how this rolls out. I do understand that we try to move very quickly with our kids, especially young kids, but yeah. they're not built for speed. Are you kidding me? The more you have speed, the more they slow down. Uh, they're they're not built for this. They can smell out, you know, your agenda um, uh, very quickly. But you know, to go back to what you were saying, which I think is really, really, really important, which is that love is not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, our love is not enough, and there's a difference between feeling loved. And I found this often with my, in, uh, you know, adult clients is that they felt loved um, by people in their world, but th- that wasn't the most important developmental question. Mm. It was whether or not they felt taken care of. Ah, and taking care of someone is the is love manifested in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love is easy to say. Uh, in many ways deeply felt it's very vulnerable but the manifestation of that is to take care of somebody because it requires sacrifice forgiveness consideration patience um, and uh, compassion and all these things that that test us so if you don't love them I don't know how you take care of them but we would be foolish to think that love and taking taking care of someone are the same things. I've seen parents totally. who have loved their mm-hmm. kids tremendously, but the gap between that and, and taking care, it can feel quite cavernous, like it's a huge oh, gap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can think of, you know, most everyone I've interacted with, I can almost, I can relate to, yes, that person loved me, mm-hmm. but did I feel taken care of by them? No, not at mm-hmm. all. Or was it safe to be taken care of them by them? They may right. have also tried to take care of, uh, of a child right. or of somebody, but it wasn't safe to rest in their care yeah. because there could have been, as you rested, yeah. as you moved into their care, there was a double-edged sword that would cut you to the quick. Uh, and, and too much of that, you know, you don't mm-hmm. feel secure in that relationship. So it's, you know, am I secure being taken care of by this person? Right. Um, you know, can I trust that it's unwavering, it won't yeah. hurt, it's safe, it's... And again, not perfect, um, but just a safe enough. Yeah, again, <laughs> if they're not resting, yeah. you could be offering up everything, all the love and yeah. all the caretaking, but if the child won't be taken care of... No, exactly. Yeah, it's not sinking in. So what do we need to show up like that? Well... Instructions won't get us there, but a yearning to uh, will get us there. Wanting to be the answer, looking for receptivity, finding ways to take care of a child and make sure that the invitation to lean on us, to depend on us, um, you know, there's just simple things that we take for granted, you know, like food and the body and health, um, to reading stories and listening to their stories for a while. Um, you know, trying to make sense of the world through their point of view. My kids, the the way when I tell them stories about when they were little, they just, oh, oh funny yeah. stories. I mean, it's just like you're feeding them. Uh, it, you just see, it's like oxygen. It's like oxygen for their bodies. 
and their hearts. It's just, tell us another story, Mommy, or just taking delight in the shared history, something that's so personal. Uh, you just see this rest that comes over them. It's just beautiful. Hmm. Of course, it's the same stories over and over again. And <laughs> luckily, I've written some of them down so I can remember them yeah. all. But yeah. that, that is the place of nourishment for them. Yeah, and it has to be genuine. Yeah. Right? Like, Absolutely. I'm thinking of myself, and my parents would tell me stories about when I was younger, you know, throughout childhood and stuff. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed. You know, like... Oh, these, you know, these stories about, you know, how I was inadequate, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, ah, ha, ha, you did this. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think about those stories now, and I'm glad I know them. Mm -hmm. Because I can appreciate that I was a vulnerable, immature, young child. And I go, oh, that's cute. Like, I can, mm -hmm. I can relate to that now. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, in childhood, no, it just, it wasn't safe mm -hmm. to, to hear those stories. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard. Like you're saying, we can't prescribe it. Like... Oh, go sit down and read a story and tell your child, is it? You know, it has to come from this place of, you know, it has to land in mm -hmm. in their reality as being safe, right? Yeah. So it's hard to, well, know, I don't think really we're meant to. hard to talk about. It, yeah, and I think it's such an important distinct, distinction is that outside the context of connection, something mm -hmm. that could feel otherwise comforting could seem so violating exactly and so without yeah. the relationship yeah. nothing works well yeah. and yet you know um how do we how do we get how do we work on relationship how do we make that our task you know it's about consistently showing up to be the one to take the lead to read the needs to uh, bridge the gap when behavior's there uh, you know, to help them with their emotions and expression of it. Uh, it's just, you know, when I sometimes when I look back at it, and I love what Gordon said in the forward of Rust Play Grow. Uh, he said, you know, I think parents work too hard at mm. doing this stuff uh, instead of just, you know, knowing that nature had a plan here to enroll yeah. development and that we have everything that we need here to get here. And sometimes I just think if you had a really sage you know wise grandmother or elder or somebody yeah. they just say you know just take care of them yeah. love them yeah. have patience they'll grow out of it i asked gordon once i said why do parents have a harder time you know with young kids behavior it seems than their grandparents do mm. grandparents seem to have such an easier time yeah you know they don't have anywhere near the responsibility usually yeah. that parents have and he just laughed and he said, you know, because grandparents have been disabused of any notion that they control behavior. <laughs> parents are still getting there. Yeah, they're still in that sculpting mentality, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I need to sculpt behavior, sculpt yeah, behavior. Right. Oh, no. You know, what if they're 15 and they're still doing that? We can't have that. And, and grandparents have been around the block long enough to know that some of that stuff it's was going to really work futile. itself out. Yeah. yeah, and that you have yeah. to give, you know, you have to protect and you have to lead through chaos and you have to give direction to a child, but that in the context of maturity and relationship, you know, you're going to get there, mm -hmm. but don't go at it too directly. Like, you yeah. know, it's going to turn on a dime. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I want to ask you more questions sure. about the gut feeling stuff, sure. but I don't know what questions to ask you. And I, sure. I almost wish I had the handle <laughs> from her. <laughs> I was actually hoping to receive that when I got the message oh, that says, yeah. oh, it's proprietary information or oh, something yeah. like that. Like, well, I'm happy Deborah to share it with you. Deborah is not giving out the gut feeling Well, I'm handout. happy to share it with you. But <laughs> maybe what I will say is that what surprised me about doing it is I went all into the biology and the neuroscience around digestion and the gut and the macrobiotic community and, you know, all the new research that's coming out about the gut and how it's our second brain and mm-hmm. uh, how, our, you know, the gut is a um, uh, plays out the drama of our emotions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and this incredible science that I think is really going to revolutionize our understanding of... Um, emotions, immune systems, digestion, absorptions, overall health and well-being, and the connection here between mind and body. I mean, we are on the horizon with our science to really make sense of this now, and it's very exciting. Uh, And so I found myself getting lost in that research. Not lost, I mean happily lost. (laughs) But I thought, I'm I'm an attachment developmentalist. What's why why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing besides another, you know, PhD in, in microbiology <laughs> is what it felt like. Uh, and it was fascinating. But I thought, okay, you gotta pull it back. What's the purpose? What's the essence of this? Yeah. And what I what I pulled out of it was that I've been trying to tease apart, you know, food, attachment, digestion. And then I started to understand how this whole system is put together. And I realized, in emotion, then I realized that nature has actually bound this all together. Mm-hmm. It works as one. That the gut and the, the gut-brain connection is responsible for all of this together. It's all integrated. It wasn't meant to be pulled apart. I'm pulling it apart so that I understand each yeah. piece. Yeah. But it's actually meant to be intertwined. Yeah. And so I thought, well, why did nature put this all together? Well, it makes sense because it's a system, right? And it's um, each piece affects each other. And that's, you know, how adaptation and survival and transformation happens is it must work together as a whole. That, you know, as Aristotle said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. It's this synergy, this dynamic uh, interconnectedness that gives rise to something. So... What I realized in the research was how much the gut stuff we aren't aware of, like basically from our top of our esophagus down into uh, where it comes out of us, elimination. Um, Basically, we're not aware of that whole process. It happens outside of consciousness. And you think, wow, we've got this huge silent conversation happening in our body around our immune system, our, our emotions, um, our, uh, you know, digestion and absorption. There's a whole body that works for us. And nobody would want to be paying attention to all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the force and the movement, I think I'd given in the presentation, the um, uh, that, you know, the whole gastrointestinal system from the top of the esophagus all the way down when there isn't any food or anything, it cleans itself and it goes mm. through every 90 minutes and it goes from top to bottom and it kind of like a nice big car wash you know rinses everything through and uh amazing with the force uh of uh with so much force and contractions that it could crush a brazil nut that's so amazing it's just amazing yeah. you know so we've got all of this internal that we're completely unaware of <laughs> 
And then you're like, okay, well, what is nature telling us here? What's the purpose? And then I realized that the purpose is to free our focus and our intentions and our attention on things that would serve us best, that only that conscious awareness must be really um, preserved for. And what I realize is so much of the information that is processed and brought to consciousness, 1% of what the brain actually processes in terms of information is, guess what? Emotional content, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which serves relationship and play. And so uh, it, it just gave me further evidence that nature's intentions for us is to free us of these bodily functions to the degree which we can focus on other people and our emotional selves Mm -hmm. and this is nature's intention for us Uh, when it's not working well it will alert us very quickly Mm -hmm. because it's a a, a wonderful wonderful surveillance system just like as the kindergartens tummy aches come to the fore something doesn't feel right it's off the gut doesn't have any words it hijacks the brain to try to make sense of it uh, everything kind of stops and we try to, you know, figure this out if we can. That's the ideal uh, kind of conditions. Um, but it, it just dawned, it just really, again, was just this huge uh, light shone on the fact that our attention is meant to go on our emotional selves and our relational selves in the context of the other and, and self. And, and this is where our time and energies are meant to be spent because that is for us um, survival. Mm-hmm. So it was really exciting to see that, you know, and, and, um, and I thought about breastfeeding a lot as nature's template to, to bring this to light because when you're, you know, breastfeeding, it, you know, I wasn't aware of the incredible dance that's happening. Not only as you feed a baby, your brain is releasing, you know, all sorts of wonderful chemicals, yeah. oxytocin, prolactin. So you get this release of milk, which and the contact and closeness opens up the baby's tummy uh, and opens up digestion. You get maximum nutrition and absorption uh, when you're in connection this way. And breastfeeding, uh, the so mother system. So what do you system, mean by the contact and closeness opens up their tummy? It makes were, everything work. Without it, if you were to yeah. leave them like sort of just lying there, mm-hmm. um, without contact or closeness, or being like just fed them, right. about, you wouldn't open like with, up with the digestion. Feeding them outside of that context. Yeah, without without yeah. being in human connection like that, you actually wouldn't physiologically open up. Mm-hmm. The whole digestive nutrition. If there's alarm in the body system. You know, the yeah. alarm takes precedent over digestion. Like, digestion doesn't yeah, happen. Of course. So what mm-hmm. happens is your strong emotions can hijack the the gut yeah. because the brain is, bo- the, the belief is that the brain is boring energy from the digestive system in order to serve the emotional needs. Right. To that, solve that the problem. That fight or flight idea, exactly. right? We, we allocate exactly. our resources to dealing with the the imminent exactly. danger right. and then we can have the luxury of digesting and right. repairing and healing and exactly. all those kinds of things so feeding happening in the context of contact and closeness yeah. make sure there's no alarm and there's rest that's the whole idea mm-hmm. and then opens up the whole system for maximum absorption it also allows for the immune signals that need to go back and forth from the baby 
to the mother. The, the research is that the baby's saliva changes to then signal the mother's brain what antibodies are needed to be released right. into the milk. Um, also, the, the climate that the baby is in uh, will uh, teach, not teach, but will inform the mother's brain uh, as to the composition of the milk. If it's in a cold climate, there'll be more fat mm. uh, produced in the milk. And if wow. it's in a, a warm one, there'll be less. Uh, not only is the baby's whole system uh, being fed by breast milk and opening up to maximum uh, use of it uh, in a healthy way, there's a Valium-like substance in the milk that uh, basically relaxes uh, you know, both parties and uh, helps that baby pair the emotion of being nurtured mm. both physically, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, this pairing of emotion and memory yeah. and being fed gets all tied together. They're not meant to be separated. They yeah. all go, they're intertwined. They've always been together. And they've mm. always been together. Yeah. And so it creates this, again, you can see the birthplace of these relationships, which says, yeah. I'll be taken care of. This is a safe person. This is someone who meets my needs. But, you know, interestingly enough, it does the same thing inside the mother, you know. Mm -hmm. The one who's breastfeeding, the nutrition of the absorption also serves her well in the sense that it opens up her system so that she can be preserved as the one to take care of uh, the child. So you see this beautiful dance that's unfolding. Now, I never knew any of this when I was breastfeeding, and nor would I really probably have focused on it too much. Right. Where my attention went was on my daughter. yeah. On who she was, on looking at her, yeah, uh, on what a you know an incredible a miracle uh, yeah. a child is, and on the on on the challenges of being a parent and the beauty of it. And so, where does our focus go? It went on being uh, a parent or taking care of a child. And you're like, yes, this is nature's way. Yeah. I don't need to know the science. All yeah. the science I've just learned is fantastic. But it's meant to be hidden for a reason. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. But then when you actually see that being in front of you in their eyes, you just get lost and they captivate you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm glad people study it and can understand the disorders of the gut and to yeah. help us with all of this. But I think when it works well, it shows us where our focus should go. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then we need to focus there and fix that and create the conditions for health. Uh, and then be restored to to health, which is both mod, body and mind. You know, and this isn't foreign to First Nations mm -hmm. or Indigenous uh, people's belief. They were never disconnected. Yeah. Uh, body, you know, soul, heart, um, uh, mind. They were always all connected. It just seems to me that we've drifted from uh, those kind of cultural beliefs that yeah. intertwine them all together. But... It's very clear that developmental science, attachment science, is leading us, neuroscience, mm -hmm. all of the sciences are leading us back to that place to say no. <laughs> yeah. They're integrated. Yeah. Well, we're obvious, obviously at an um, earlier developmental stage then, from a <laughs> developmental perspective, if we're parsing out signals in order to understand <laughs> yes. each of them, we haven't mixed them or integrated them yet. We haven't matured. Yeah, maybe this is our path to maturity then. Maybe we're getting to more, you know, we're just coming out of the preschooler. <laughs> Right? We're just yeah. coming out of the preschool stage of development. Yeah. And like any healthy preschooler, we've been demanding about needing the stage at all times, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen to us. We're superior. Yeah. I have the answer. Our own form of logic that doesn't make sense. That was only to you. 
Oh, it's yeah. so true, right? And these yeah. mature forms of yeah. knowing culture, yeah, right? They had an integrated idea of things, mm-hmm. right? But or no practices that honor them. But yeah, yeah no. But no consciousness. They never right. needed it. So, yeah, so in many ways, I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, heads are up or tails are up or... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the infants in the Korean orphanages Mm -hmm. that had the 80% mortality rate or whatever Mm -hmm. it was, right? And we kind of drew that conclusion, or, or people speak to this. They say, well, the children were given their basic needs. Mm-hmm. But they lacked love and affection, and so it was—it's more been chalked up to touch, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't given physical touch, physical mm-hmm. affections. Their mm-hmm. sensory needs were not met. Mm-hmm. But if you add this whole layer of, well, even if they were given their quote-unquote basic needs, mm-hmm. food and what have you, they wouldn't have been able to receive it or be fed, or come to a place of rest to take in no. the nourishment. It's not no. just that they lacked touch it's just that the touch would open the doorway to Mm-mm. them being fed on a yeah. basic need if, if touch reduced alarm then the nourishment would be able to be more more sustaining yeah, yeah. if the touch it wasn't touch that was the answer it was to what touch did emotionally for the whole system which was to bring it to rest yeah so that nourishment could could take the lead then um, but in the absence of rest you know, then that's the modus operandi of the brain is to restore this. So is it a separation cry? Is it, a, or is it, you know, detachment when you feel like when the brain has decided that it's not coming and so there is this yeah. complete detachment. So no, nothing does, it doesn't work outside of attachment. They're all meant to go together. Yeah. They weren't meant to be separated. So yeah, it, it and touch is a very superficial form of connection, but mm-hmm. at least it's the the beginning in the birthplace, you know, mm-hmm. certainly in the first year of 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 attachment is that sensory um, sensory contact. But you'd need more than that. You know, you need a, a sense of being the same as someone or belonging to open up language, to open up play, to open up uh, personhood and desire and you know emergence forward to discovering. You'd need a deeper sense of relationship. You couldn't just be anchored by by touch. Mm-hmm. But it would be important to get out the gate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You just take it to a whole other level with the gut feelings thing. So, did you end up doing research on the the heart brain stuff too? Then, no. So there's a lot of research about the little brain in the heart and yes. the brain in the gut and yes. all the neurotransmitters that are manufactured there and yeah, just our whole you know this doesn't seem like much of a main brain anymore. Right? No. It's more. Well, you know, the, the relationship and the dance between the brain and the gut, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is the key thing, is, is that, you know, and our theories of emotions have gone somewhat like this, is that uh, Lang uh, thought that, you know, it was very much an interoception view of emotion, meaning that emotion was stirred up in the body, and that was just basically what our emotions and our feelings were, mm. is our body sensations, and, and this was it. Mm. And then you had people like Antonio Damasio and our neuroscientists who came along who said, no, no, the brain fundamentally is where the emotions lie, and this mm. is you know, how we're processing them, and, and the brain, uh, its job is to um, you know, interpret the body signals, and, um, and to this is where emotion lies, is in the head. But then you have other neuroscientists that are sort of coming out after that, like Bud Craig, 
uh, and people uh, of his uh, sort of evolution which say no it's neither the body nor just the brain it's the integration Mm. that we need to look at and how they feed each other and how they have a conversation with each other the brain ultimately has the hierarchy Mm. Antonio Damasio is absolutely right it does play the role of interpreting and being Mm. Uh, you know, the executive of this system, although the gut can operate outside of the um, the brain's direction mm-hmm. for, a lar- for a large part of stuff. Um, but it's this interconnection where the brain is meant to take the lead, but is very isolated without the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the two must work hand in hand. And so it's fascinating science. Uh, you know, one of the leading researchers in this area is Michael Gershon, uh, who came out with the term a second brain. Mm. He's a neuroscientist and had discovered that a lot of the serotonin produced in the body, uh, serotonin implicated in mental health and emotional uh, issues, uh, mental health uh, diseases, um, he found that it was in the gut. And no one believed him. Uh, and so he had to actually really convince his whole neuroscientific community that this is indeed, and he did a lot of research and was very persistent. And so, but what he says is that, you know, this is like a, you know, 40 year kind of career, whatever. And he says, to look at the new science today is to envy the young, because we really are understanding things in a much more Mm. profound way. And our technology has allowed us to get there, is to examine these pieces and, Mm -hmm. and try to put them together. Again, you know, as a developmentalist, I come back and say, so what? What does this tell us? This tell us, this tells us that health and well-being Mm -hmm is based on relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> and our emotions. Yeah. You don't think ourselves into wellness. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, not that it isn't part of it, but yeah. it's yeah. not the essence of it. Yeah. I like distinguishing how Gordon kind of talks about, yes, taking up a relationship with, mm-hmm. you know, our thoughts and that sort of thing, right? Which kind of looks, I guess, a little bit like some of the cognitive behavioral strategies I guess right like mm-hmm. saying you know I don't agree with that or mm-hmm. um, but yeah not thinking we can override our emotion or mm-hmm. or think our way out of it or you know that whole calm down movement right yeah. as this this goal of you know mm-hmm. that's where we want to get to mm-hmm. and on the one hand like yeah I guess when we are mature conditions have you know produced a fully functioning integrated human being yeah we look relatively calm and that's that's pretty good yeah we mm-hmm. have to be calm in order to function and have jobs in that but mm-hmm. but still there's kind of that those other emotions that come to the table bringing important elements that mix mm-hmm. are kind of just negated and mm-hmm. I love inside out for that yeah I'm it was brilliant honored. Yeah, bringing that to the fore. And I think you're right that, you know, we got lost in so, and I I love Gordon's points to this, that, you know, the cognitive uh, piece has had a lot of room and space. And the behavioral piece has had a lot of room and space and focus on human behavior. But what got eclipsed in all of that is the piece that emotions play and instincts instincts play. Uh, We can't negate this part of ourselves. Uh, and there is an order to development. Emotional development is as sophisticated as cognitive development. 
it, it, it can't be sidelined anymore. It's not that we aren't cognitive, nor that we need to, to, not, to stop focusing or trying to understand behavior. Yes, these things are all part of us. But we can, we can no longer negate that we are driven by instincts and impulses. Mm-hmm. When we're immature, this should be most true of us. When we are more mature, we should have a relationship mm-hmm. with this side of self. And we can use, um, you know, our emotions and our cognition to influence our behavior. That behavior should come under a system of self-control, mm-hmm. that this is nature's answer. But what got sidelined for so many years with John Locke and the cognitive rational approach, behaviorism and Skinner and all the people, John Watt, John Watson and all of the folks that really focused on these areas, is they eclipsed emotion they downplayed it they saw it as a nuisance variable it was invisible and ephemeral and you couldn't capture it and it it uh you know i think and sometimes it left people with this sense of disgust that it was very animal-like and very raw and there was something wrong with this more primitive side of ourself so instead of having a relationship with our immaturity we sought to override it and in doing so uh we lost the essence of and the path to, I think, what would make us more mature is to have a relationship with this, these parts of it, and to help our kids. You know, when I give the talks on emotions, what I hear over and over again every time I talk about emotional development is, oh my goodness, we didn't get this as kids. We got none of this. And I say, yes, but how exciting to be a parent today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how exciting to have this understanding it doesn't feel like a strange fit so i'm not against cognitive you know cognitive stuff i'm not against behavioral stuff mm-hmm. i'm just saying that we've got to understand how they all fit together mm. and not to sideline emotion anymore and to suggest that this is not part of us it is part of us and in fact it does shape the brain it is the part that we grow the other parts from, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we have to, we have to turn our eyes to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think when, you know, when I really have looked at this work and looked at myself as a result of it, rather than seeing kind of the overarching calm, when I look in the mirror, I can now see, oh, look, there's a piece of frustration, but it's mixing with some caring. And a part of me is actually a little bit alarmed. Like I can identify those mm-hmm. mixers now, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I think without that awareness that what's underneath calm is actually mixing elements, mm-hmm. adults would never think to look. They just think we want calm. You know, calm is what we want. I'm calm and I want mm-hmm. them to be calm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? As opposed mm-hmm. to saying, well, what's underneath this appearance of calm well Mm -hmm. actually there's a little bit of alarm there and there's Mm -hmm. some you know i'm not actually patient i'm just mature and i'm actually impatient Mm -hmm. you can't be patient Mm -hmm. without impatience being there and mixing with you know some other agent yeah and i think that's such an important part uh, point is that i think many parents think they failed uh, when they don't feel calm around their kids right and the reality is is that um, have you met children? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like going to work some days was easier than being around. Uh, you know, there was less immature people at work than there was at home. <laughs> that was on a good day. 
although sometimes it was easier to be at home on some days. But I, I can say that, you know, this idea, and I think many parents, and I certainly fell into this trap as a new parent, is that there was something wrong with me if I didn't, if I wasn't feeling calm inside, mm. uh, always warm and loving towards my children, that somehow oh. I was a flawed parent. Right. And when you actually realize that maturity is feeling lots of mixed feelings at the same time, but not having to act on them. Yeah. I can be very frustrated and still be a great caretaker to my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can shield them from that. I can act out more out of my caring instincts than my frustration instincts. I can, if my frustration gets too big, I can change the structure and routine. I can do something different to preserve myself uh, so that my kids are none the wiser. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can be incredibly alarmed. And there have been times when I have been very alarmed uh, and have led my children through situations that required it, like being in, um, you know, in Italy in the middle of a riot and uh, just like, okay, this is how I'm going to lead through. Uh, There wasn't an, I wasn't calm, uh, but I was in Italy with my two kids and I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to do this. And so I I think parents think they fail when they're not calm. And Mm. and if, you know, they could hear the message that, oh my goodness, just don't deliver your lack of, don't deliver those emotions onto your kids, but use your caring to temper it and to take the lead. Oh, then you're doing great. And then find an emotional playground or someone to talk to once they go to bed. Go do laundry. <laughs> go call your partner. Go rant go somewhere to the bathroom. else. Go find another adult who loves you a lot and just deliver it to them. Yeah. Or, you know, go make a cup of tea or go find your own place to play. Go, you know, music. I would, uh, yeah. you know, go play the uh, play the piano and, and exactly. uh, you know, a really powerful piece. I feel great. Yeah. Uh, you know, or just just wait. Yeah, just Emo- wait. <laughs> emotions pass. Yeah, exactly. It's only just only wait so five long. minutes. Guaranteed, you're likely going to feel a little bit different in five minutes. Yeah, like it's yeah. just there's no magic to it. It's like the film Life is Beautiful, right? Yeah. With the with the dad. How alarmed must he have been yes. in a concentration camp, and yet he yes. allowed that element of you know caring alpha instincts to be greater than you know, the awfulness that he yeah. must have been feeling. It's just like, take, mm-hmm. take the wheel. You know, what's that country song? Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Alpha, take the wheel. Alpha, carrying instincts, take the wheel. Mama needs you right now, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> just so trust it to take the lead. It, it really will, if you dig into that and believe that the answers are in there, you're more likely to find them than in any parenting book yeah, <laughs> or yeah. instructions or strategies or, you know, performances that you think you have to give. And my parents say, well, what do I say? No, 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 no. <laughs> Please don't use my words. I can't give you a script. Just let let your instincts, you know, emotions, trust that they can find their way and take the, take the wheel. Mm-hmm. And if, if not, don't worry. You'll have another chance. Your children will behave that way again. <laughs> in two minutes. <laughs> you can, you can, you're going to have another opportunity yeah. to steer pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, we're getting pretty close to the time we need to wrap up, so I want to see if there's anything that I've kind of missed or you know, that we haven't had a chance to talk about that was really an important piece you know, from the book. Or I, We could talk forever, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Anybody who's studied Gordon's work could probably get together and talk for two weeks. Yeah. Um, 
But anything about the, the gut feeling subject matter or, um, you know, something really important from the, from the book maybe that, I, that we didn't touch on? I think the only thing from the, the book I would say, and yes, I, I absolutely love talking to you. It's, uh, you know, just drawing this material out into everyday life just makes it, you know, it's wonderful to have the science, but when you see it come to life, in everyday life and the challenges that we have it's just that's where it's worth its weight in gold so mm-hmm. I, I love that uh, drawing it out into that context I would say the only thing that I would add that I think is important that we miss is that our young children especially by the age of three can be so full of resistance and opposition mm. and my goodness does that push your buttons if you think you're supposed to be in church and you feel like you are in church and I think if we could see the developmental trajectory on this, if we could understand that resistance is a very natural emotion to have, it's part of nature's intention, it gives rise to a separate person, so you have your own mind, you know your preferences, wants and wishes, you can steer your way into the world under your own will, it's where intrinsic motivation comes from, your own desires, your own personhood comes from, but it's really difficult in a three-year-old who uh, wants to be a nudist, uh, who doesn't believe in diapers anymore and needs to wear them. Uh, wants candy for supper. He wants candy for supper, wants to be nocturnal. Um, like, it, just because they have their own will just starting to emerge doesn't mean that any of it makes sense (laughs) and so when it first appears you know and 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 then the food stuff I realized that this is the place where we no longer are just simply fed but become an eater Mm. it's like I don't like that what do you mean you don't like that (laughs) well hello I've arrived and I don't like that (laughs) one of my friends said it very clearly to me is at age three you know, her mother and her got along really well up until about age three when she got her own mind. And then everything started to fall <laughs> it apart. It was so much easier when we were just so, one. <laughs> it's so much easier when you just need to follow and attachment needs are so hungry. But by the time of three, you know, you're just your own little person. I do it myself. You got your own little agenda. And that's when I see parents just go, what? Uh, and you can get into some ferocious battles of will where parents are reduced to toddlers and preschoolers. I'm sad to admit I might have had a few of those myself. (laughs) And you're just like, you know what this is, and you're here. Oh, my goodness. Hit the eject button. Where's the parachute? Get out of this and get back into a relationship and into the lead. And and I I love what Gordon says is that, you know, the, the qualities that we admire most in adults being your own person, having your own mind, standing your own ground, not being swayed in particular directions that don't make sense to you, not fusing and having an identity that's just based on your next closest attachment, but really being your own separate social, adaptive being, responsible, caring individual uh, that can sometimes go it alone if they need to. That those things that we value start to appear and need to be nurtured at the age of three. But we still need to take the lead. Mm-hmm. No candy for supper. No <laughs> and, and so here's the thing is that we've got to grow a separate little person and keep these instincts to resist intact at the same time that we take care of them. And so how do you not kill that spirit but also present the reality at the same time? 
Well, good luck with that and podcast. <laughs> so I guess you'll have to read my book then to figure that one out. <laughs> but I would say that sometimes it involves some tears, you know, and I talk about a little girl in there by the name of Beatrice, and that was actually my daughter Madeline. And uh, and I just I didn't put their names in for oh, some okay. of the examples. You, oh, they're in yeah. all through the book, and sometimes they'll flip through and they're like, "Oh yeah, that was you." <laughs> and they're not all them, but uh, this one little one because I just you know what it's their identity, and, and you sure. know I don't yeah. want that to. This is my story, and I didn't want to paint that for them as a mother. I, I felt quite protective of that. Yeah. But you know, here and there, I will tell the story about. It. But so Beatrice is Madeline, and she would ask for candy for breakfast, and uh, <laughs> over and over and over again, she got the taste the sweets and she's like where have you been all my life and so we went through a path of tears no we're not having candy for breakfast I know you love your candy no mama says no that's fine you can be frustrated yes I know you don't love mommy right now whatever it was uh you know and just took care of her but just she had some tears I'd say for a week or two about some candy big tears to start with little tears like well grumpy ones later but about a month later she said to me um and she accepted that this was a no got on with business but about a month later she looked at me and she said can I have candy for breakfast I want candy for breakfast <laughs> and I looked at her and I knew she knew and uh and for whatever reason I was probably a little frustrated a little sarcastic this isn't the approach that I would recommend but I did say these things and I said oh sure Madeline sure sure you can have all the candy you want get the bowl out you know get out the ice cream uh, get out the chocolate chip cookies, put it all on the counter, fill up whatever you want. You can have as much as you like. And I'll never forget her little eyes looking at me. She must have been three and a half, four. And she said, Mama, you'd have to be dead for that to happen. <laughs> and why I love that so much is that her spirit mm. and her desire was absolutely intact. Yeah. That had not been crushed or killed or maimed. She was still as ferocious as ever, but she now knew through her tears and consistency and getting the message in through the relationship and the emotional process that had to happen, the tears that would come, the frustration that would melt, mad turn to sad, uh, her desire and her spirit and her motivation is very much intact. And I can tell you now that she's 12, <laughs> we haven't lost any headway on that front. <laughs> But is now directed into the external world where she, you know, takes on tasks and has tenacity and perseverance. Mm -hmm. But it is always, she also has an appreciation for the limits and the futilities that are there, mm -hmm. which is the pathways of, t uh, of tears. So I think that, you know, having relationship, having the tears, you know, having your agenda, which must prevail sometimes, but keeping a hold of that relationship doesn't kill the spirit but it does give it channels for expression that will make them fit for society. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really important to get with a preschooler, is the three-year-old to the 30-year-old. There's, there's a connection here, and we've got to go the distance and not kill that resistance that we see in them, but we do have to help yeah. it adjust to reality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that would be the big thing I would say, that people oftentimes trip over all the time with their preschooler that would be yeah. really important to get because yeah. if we don't we just end up in battles with our kids it erodes yeah. the relationship and it creates insecurity if there's too much of this yeah yeah she was still Madeline was still confident enough to 
to, to let that come out, that I want candy for breakfast. That was that her inner expression that wanted to come out. <laughs> and, and she also knew that you weren't going to... Yeah. She wasn't actually trying to bend your will. She knew that that was futile. <laughs> Yeah. Right, but she still, it still had to come out, right? Yeah. So she still got the desire. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and the desire needed to be expressed. Yeah. Right, but if you had come in there thinking, you know, I'm going to, I have to break you of this. Yeah. You know, I want to break that will because I've told you. Yeah. How many times do I have to tell you? Yeah. Kind of thing, right? If you just, no, go ahead yeah. and make that expression. It's not influencing or changing my decision. Yeah. But, oh, is that ever beautiful? Yeah. Well, you can preserve the will but alter the form of behavior that it goes into. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. Cookies are not negotiable yeah. this way, uh, and, you know, when you're young. But, um, if you know, you having your own mind about stuff, mm-hmm. that's always welcome. Yeah. But just because it's welcome doesn't mean we're in agreement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to collude with that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, some adults don't get that when they're in the workplace. You know, so you understand how significant this is that sometimes we can sit around at a table, make decisions, and we can each have our own mind. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and everybody must show up that way for democracies to work well. But we also must face the futility that Mm -hmm. uh, our view might not be represented the way we want it to be, and that this is part of being an individual but also must needing to fit in yeah. with others and that we are in this place of uh, yeah. both being separate and together. So it, it is, it's huge when you look at maturity and functioning in society. We don't connect those dots, but uh, my goodness, if we understood that this is connected and this yeah. is the path to maturity, is taking our upset and not lashing out about it to accept what we cannot change and to have our spirits still intact and our desires still intact to find other ways for them to be manifested and, and fulfilled. Yeah. yeah. Well, in so many families, right, disagreement means the relationship is broken. Exactly. Like, uh-oh, we disagree. Exactly. This means we're in really deep trouble. Exactly. Whereas if that child has had that experience over and over, like, we had our own minds and yet everything was still okay. Yeah. And we didn't always get our own mind in our own way. Um, and we got to express that in, in ways that were appropriate, you know, like yeah. where we got to play or my kids, you know, soon learned they could, you know, or soon had the opportunity to dress themselves. Uh, I didn't care as long as they weren't uh, outside, you know, uh, naked uh, in, yeah. in the winter. That was kind of one of my conditions. Yeah, um, exactly. They could exactly. take the wheel on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's a really good place to kind of end, too, because I'm looking at you and there's this big bookshelf behind you and I'm thinking, why would people buy all these books written by these people, right? Because they have their own mind and they, yeah. it's those qualities, like you said, that we revere in, and we're trying to seek that out. Mm-hmm. And usually it's in the form of a how-to book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, how, how do I be like that? Well, you know. Mm-hmm. That often isn't fostered in our children. It's seen as defiance or, mm-hmm. you know, unruliness or bad behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But really, it's a, it's a really good spin on things to look mm-hmm. at it that way. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, and I also thought of Malala too, right? Yes. And I know that when she came out um, as being the brave little... 12-year-old soul rallying girls in Pakistan. I thought, who is this person? Mm -hmm. So I went and watched a bunch of videos, and I saw her father talking. I don't know if you watched any videos. No, I didn't. Um, Her father online, he's talking about her, and I thought, oh, I get it. 
This child has never worked a day in her life for attachment. No wonder she can go out into the mm -hmm. world that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's just, he adores mm -hmm. this child, just in love with her, absolutely mm -hmm. in love. And so, yeah, yeah and she's you see very that. much at rest. Yeah, and I, I watched, I was having that same similar thoughts about who were those children that uh, came out in the Parkland um, uh, mm. school down in Florida, mm. uh, you know, protesting uh, guns and just yeah. rallying their youth yeah. together. And, you know, I saw people say, oh, you know, it was the digital world that allowed these kids to do what they were able to do. And I'm like, no, it mm. wasn't anything to do in the external world. These kids knew who they were, what they stood for. I mean, the passion and the tenacity to get out there and, and to, to speak their words uh, that needed to be here. There was somebody at home, mm -hmm. and that somebody at home was grown. Yeah, uh, You couldn't fake that kind of a performance. Uh, yeah. This was somebody who understood what their own agenda and will was and, and uh, really used resistance mm -hmm. in the way that nature intended it. So I thought, no, 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 I'd like to meet... Who were the people responsible for growing these phenomenal uh, individuals yeah. who yeah. had their mind? Whether you agree with their own mind or not, or what they were saying, yeah. the fact that Either they way. had this tenacity to come <laughs> mm -hmm. forward and, and to step into that place. Yeah. Uh, this is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That small shift in perception just goes a long way, right? If you're perceiving or making sense of this child as being you know, awful and defiant and go mm -hmm. going to jail when they're older, then you're going to mm -hmm. try to crush that. Mm -hmm. Or press down on it, right? And break their will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if you see them as the, you know, future Malalas and authors and mm -hmm. little Gordon Newbelts. <laughs> <laughs> what a different perception that would be. <laughs> oh, I can I can just imagine his intensity. Yeah, as a little one. Well he hasn't lost it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well I think um we can end there, or if you have yeah. any final... No, just kind thank of, you for doing yeah. this. Very insightful, and uh, I've really enjoyed my time with you, so thank oh, you. Oh, me too, yeah. And I think this will be a really good foundation for future podcasts, because I have mm -hmm. a huge you know, pool of individuals to, mm -hmm. to draw from with the Institute and people who are involved in this work. And I think each of those little pieces that you spoke to, I could you know, take an episode and just unpack that counter-will dynamic or alpha mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. emotions and, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, each one of these little um, topics is a portal um, to a huge, you know, dynamic and mm -hmm. there's so much there mm -hmm. that will help parents hopefully understand themselves and their children and, yeah, take mm -hmm. a little bit of that edge off. <laughs> yes, and, and to, go, you know, as Gordon always says, is to realize we don't have to have all the answers mm -hmm. to be the answer. So I think mm -hmm. if you bring that to your parents and the people that, you know, listen, I think that will be an incredible, incredible gift mm -hmm. that they can relax into that yeah. and enjoy their kids. Yeah. yeah. And it's fun. Thank you so much for your yeah, time. And I, look, thank you. I really look forward to reading your book. Oh, good. Yeah, thank I am going to nerd out <laughs> so hard on that book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for your brilliance and your wisdom and, and your time. I know it's really valuable. So. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.